0: Hello my friends, welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson and I just got back from the dentist's office. So I'm thrilled to be with you even more than usual. Uh, thankfully no cavities this time so I'm not afraid of my mouth starting to droop or me beginning to drool all over myself. Uh, But I would so much rather be with you than in the dentist's chair because here we get to talk shop and dive into scripture and we have amazing scripture to study this week. We finished James last week and we are now on to Peter, the chief apostle and his writings are magnificent. In fact, Joseph Smith himself once said that Peter penned the most sublime language of any of the apostles. And that's high praise. Considering what we've already learned from the sublime language of Paul, or even in the Gospels, the sublime language of Matthew, or what about John? I mean, John wrote as as beautifully as I can imagine. And yet for the prophet to say that Peter surpassed them all in sublimity, wow, that's, that's impressive. It's especially impressive considering who it's coming from, because Peter, I mean, the one that they accused of being or assumed of being an illiterate fisherman, that he'd be able to write things on the, on the level of what we're about to study this week. In fact, even modern scholars have scratched their head thinking, even the Greek of the manuscripts seems to surpass what any mere Galilean would be able to pull off. And some of them suggest, therefore, that it must have been written by somebody else. Now, it's possible that someone in Peter's close circle of friends could have put their pen to paper and and taken Peter's thought and put it in in loftier terms. We saw some possibilities of that in the writings of of Paul. Was it a a Pauline associate? Was it one of his junior companions? Was it someone in his close circle? There's possibilities like that. Then again, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's amazing how it helps us grow and how it motivates us to, to develop and learn and study and become more equal to the tasks set before us. Joseph Smith himself is a great example of that, where you read his early writings and the spelling's atrocious and the grammar's bad, and yet he learned and desired so much. He, he, studied, he studied languages, he studied human nature, he studied history and studied scripture like you wouldn't believe, and he, he grew up in such amazing intellectual ways as well as spiritual ways. You get a similar sense when it comes to Simon Peter. And in fact, those two names, Simon, his given name, and Peter, the nickname Jesus gave him, sums up this man and the process by which he grew. As we talked about him back in the Gospels, I mean, honestly, I've I've missed Peter. How about you? He's so relatable. He's so wonderfully real and raw. And you see so much of Simon in the stories about him in the Gospels where he puts his foot in his mouth and he jumps ahead when he should have held back. And, I mean, Jesus calls him the rock in one verse, and then just like a column later, he calls him Satan uh, for getting in the Savior's way. It's amazing. Uh, Like I've said, he is so much a Simon in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And by the time you get to the book of Acts, he is fully Peter. He is a rock that Christ can help and Christ can build his church around. It's, It's amazing to see this growth. And today, to get the chance to listen to him as chief apostle, as one who is building the kingdom every chance that he can, and doing so in the face of incredible opposition, especially by the time Second Peter is written, we are approaching the end of Peter's life. And if you remember back to the end of John, when the resurrected Lord comes to Peter and says, follow me, and he means a certain thing by that he said, when you were young, you got to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted. Well, the day will come where someone else will gird you and you'll be girded to a cross. You won't go where you want to go. You'll go where they want you to go. And that place is the grave. That was signifying the death whereby Peter would glorify Christ. And Peter seemed to get it because there's kind of a gulp there and looking around, well, what's going to happen to John then? And Jesus' response, don't worry about John. Worry about yourself and just follow me. Well, Peter's going to do that. And in the letters we're going to study today, you will see a sense of suffering. Although it seems to be what's going on around Peter, not within Peter's heart, because he seems to be totally fine with it all. Like bring it on. Like uh, Elder Joseph B. Worthland used to say, come what may and love it. And that's Peter at this point. Then again, the saints that surround him are suffering as well. And so there is so much reassurance in these two letters to try to encourage them and strengthen their conviction so that no matter what comes their way, they'll be able to remain faithful. There's also a sense of almost impatience, or at least urgency, on the saints' part regarding the second coming. Because if I'm suffering today, but Jesus is coming tomorrow, then my suffering's almost at an end. Well, the question is is he coming tomorrow, or is it the day after that, or a long, long way off in the distance? And so the second coming will be another theme that runs throughout these letters. Pay close attention, though, to see Peter's attitude poking through. It's glorious. See his conviction, his testimony. See his doctrine, because this is no illiterate Galilean. This is no simple fisherman anymore. This is a mighty fisher of men. And the things that he's going to emphasize, I'll vouch for Joseph's assessment. They are sublime. So let's turn to them and begin to study. Chapter 1, verse 1, we'll see a salutation similar to what we were used to from Paul. But he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, those are all provinces in Asia Minor. Okay, so modern-day Turkey. And there are strangers scattered throughout. But you remember what Paul had said about strangers? Strangers and foreigners that are now fellow citizens with the saints? That's who, Paul is, or who Peter is writing to as well. So yes, you used to be strangers, scattered Israel throughout the, these parts of the Roman Empire. But what are you now? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. A message coming from the chief apostle to every stranger across the land. But strangers that are elect of God. According to his foreknowledge, you have been foreordained to be chosen by God. Because he knew that you would choose him. As part of that choosing process, you have been sanctified by the spirit. You're being made holy. You're growing up in God. And it's through the sprinkling of his blood. We're seeing atonement in this salutation. From there, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, we've seen his knowledge, now we see his mercy. Notice the divine attributes that, that Peter focuses on. But according to his abundant mercy, he hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept, or another way to translate that Greek word, guarded, who are guarded by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the last time as far as Peter and the saints are concerned. And notice as he focused on the atonement in the first passage, now he moves to the resurrection in this one. That through the resurrection, we have a lively hope to be begotten again and receive an incorruptible inheritance. Now, there's a lot in there. First of all, think about the idea of being begotten again. To Nicodemus, Jesus had talked about rebirth. Well, this is something similar. In the, in, on the one hand, we're all children of God by default. We are spirit sons and daughters of heavenly parents. Nothing will change that, and there was no choice needed on our part. But to be begotten again... This is when we choose Christ as the father of our covenant and the church as the mother of of those covenants where Christ can now provide and preside and protect and the church can nurture us as we grow up in God. That's how we are begotten sons and daughters unto God rather than spiritually created sons and daughters of God. So this rebirth, this being begotten again unto a lively hope Despite the persecution, the dark clouds that are moving in on the saints, you can have hope in Christ. And because Christ lives, your hope can be lively. He plays on some of these words, and we'll see living as a focal point in some later passages as well. But because of this lively hope, can you picture Peter sprinting to the, to the now empty tomb? Oh, he came back with a hope that was incredibly lively. And what we're hoping for here is an inheritance. After all, if we've been begotten sons and daughters unto God, then, as Paul had said to the Romans, we can be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's the hope we have, through the atonement and through the resurrection. Now, verse 6, wherein, so in, in this hope, in this inheritance, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now, for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And remember in the Greek, the word for temptations and the word for trials is the same. So you have to go by context. Well, I think the King James translators got it wrong because what Peter's about to say makes it clear it's manifold trials that we're talking about here. And manifold means various. It means of all kinds, all different kinds. And so, yes, we face all manner of trials and tribulations in our life and rejoice despite that fact. And here's why. That the trial of your faith, that's how we know it's trial, not temptation. The trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There's our first hint that this is all coming in a second, a second coming context. Okay, At the appearing of Christ. We've seen atonement. We've seen resurrection. Now we see second coming. And along those lines, rejoice that you are suffering affliction. It's like, what? What kind of attitude is that? Well, it's the exact kind of attitude you'll need to be able to make it through these dark days. Realize that it is your faith that's being tried. Faith in Christ. Faith in the lively hope that that he has given us and faith in the incorruptible inheritance that he's promised. It's going to require faith to make it through these days. Because the opposition that you face and the persecution that you'll have to endure, it's going to require your faith to be able to push through it. However long that faith will be required until Christ comes. But please rest assured that faith is worth trying because it's more precious than gold. Think about gold that everyone seems to put so much stock upon, and yet gold itself has to be refined. It has to be burned, subjected to the fire so that the dross is melted away. That's how you refine something like gold. Well, if gold is so precious as to be worth the refining, well, your faith is far more precious than gold. And so, if you're willing to let gold be refined, shouldn't we be open to the refinement that our faith requires? And that will... That will happen as we push our faith through the refiner's fire. Welcome to life in these last days, Peter is saying. The same applies so perfectly to us when we face the refiner's fire. Know that the trial of faith is for our good, and so we can rejoice when it's happening. Notice also the language he said at the beginning it's just now, it's not going to be forever, it's only for a season. And this season of suffering will, will come and go. It's if need be. And the Lord isn't forcing us to suffer for no reason. If it need be, some purification is still required. Then prepare yourself. Peter himself was incredibly well prepared for that. He was willing to submit to anything Jesus found necessary for him to go through. And speaking of Jesus, look at verse 8 and 9. Whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, or the JST, the object of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, for Peter, he knew Jesus so personally, so intimately, and yet these saints scattered throughout Asia Minor, they'd never seen Jesus. But they loved him. Again, this applies to us. Though though having not seen Christ, we love him. And if we love him, can we not believe in him? Despite the fact we cannot see him right now, we can rejoice in this unspeakable joy because we know what the end of our faith will bring. Salvation. So hold on to that faith, come what may. Now, speaking of that salvation, go to verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. That was something on their mind constantly. So prophets are trying to understand how do we obtain this salvation that God has promised. And these prophets prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. You see, those Old Testament prophets that Peter looked back to to, we're going to see him quoting many of them today, but those prophets have been pointing to Jesus Christ all along. All those Messianic prophecies fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Peter was alive to see it. In fact, you remember the phrase that Jesus said to Peter and the others at the beginning of Matthew 13, that many prophets and righteous men have longed to see the things that you see and have not seen them. And to hear the things that you hear and have not heard them. He's basically telling his apostles, you're living in the most glorious time period, despite all of its opposition and persecution. You're living in the days that prophets have dreamed of. So yes, you're living the dream. And the same could be said of us. This is the same Peter who, back in Acts chapter 3, talked about the times of refreshing and restitution of all things, that all the holy prophets had their eyes on. Well, there were two time periods prophets seem to be looking forward to with anxious anticipation. One was Peter's day, and the other is ours. The I should say Jesus' day, (laughs) and the other is ours. The dispensation of the meridian of times, and then the dispensation of the fullness of times. And so, yes, picture what the prophets have been searching diligently for, and look around, and despite the difficulties of our time period, they would have given anything to live in them themselves, because prophecies are being fulfilled. Christ came in the meridian. He will come again at the end of the fullness. These dispensations, oh, what a time to be alive. So cheer up, my fellow suffering saints. He says in verse 12, unto whom it was revealed, so he's still speaking of those Old Testament prophets, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. I mean, even the angels seem to be jealous about all of this. They're kind of peeking over the prophet's shoulders like, what are you writing about? What are you prophesying of? It's like, oh, don't you wish you could live in those days? I I wish we could come and live in those days too. Well, maybe we'll need them as guardian angels to be able to make it through these difficult times. But to have that kind of attitude, that these prophets were not talking to themselves. They didn't get to live these days. They're talking unto us. And now these things are being reported all around us. These are the days of prophecies fulfilled. And so what a glorious time to be alive. With that in mind, verse 13 becomes such a beautiful piece of advice. He says, wherefore, so as a result of everything I've said up to this point, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That revelation of Jesus Christ, when he is revealed, his coming, that's when you will have every hope fulfilled. So hope till then. Hope to the end for the grace that will come. And did you catch how he said it at the beginning? To hold on to that hope, yes, you'll need to be sober. Take it seriously. But an even more powerful phrase, you'll have to gird up the loins of your mind. That's a powerful phrase. Especially for us in our day, where it is so hard to hold on to mental strength. Mental illness runs rampant. And there is depression and despair and despondency that seems to be... Oh, nibbling away at the corners of our mind, darkness beginning to creep in where there once was light. And especially considering the loss of faith all around us, the wickedness of the last days. We are living in a time period where it is hard to hold on to hope. That's why Peter is speaking so hopefully. Lively hope. Hold on to the hope. The grace is coming because Christ is coming. But in order to endure till then, you've got to hold on with your mind to the promises God has made you. Do you remember the phrase Jacob used? And Jacob was one who felt a lot of anxiety during his time period. This is Jacob of the Book of Mormon. He'd been through so much. When he's talking to others who had gone through a lot, victims of other people's immoralities, he recommended to them firmness of mind. He brought it up twice. And to think of that, keeping your mind firm, holding on to hope when there's a million voices telling you that it's, that it's hopeless. No, I'm going to cast those out as impure thoughts because that's exactly what they are. Those voices screaming at me, telling me it's not worth holding on, that Jesus is never going to come, that it's never going to get better, that your wayward children will never return. Whatever the voices in your head are saying, it will require firmness of mind to block them out. Or as Peter said, you will have to gird up the loins of your mind. To gird up your loins is like to get in the printer, the sprinter's stance. It's ready to run and ready to work. Back in those days where men would, let, would wear long flowing robes, tough to run like that. I, I don't know for myself, but you sisters I'm sure could vouch for it. What they would do is they would gird up their loins. They would bend over, reach through their legs and grab the back side, the back hem of their robe, and then pull it forward and tuck it into their belt. And all of a sudden, a big flowing robe had turned into MC Hammer parachute pants. Now I can run. Now I can work. I'm ready to go. Now to do that mentally, where my, the mental robes are flapping in the wind and I'm being tossed about by every wind of despair... What do I do? I gird up the loins of my mind. I lay hold upon truth, and I cast out thoughts of darkness. That's what Peter is suggesting, encouraging, recommending for us all. These days, it's absolutely essential. In fact, the next phrase, he says that we need to be as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, I mean, back then you didn't know any better, okay? But now you're growing up in God. Now we do know better. And so forget the former lusts, forget our old ignorance. We need to be obedient children. He says in the next phrase, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And remember, conversation from the King James language isn't how you talk, it's how you walk. It's your conduct, it's your behavior. Be holy in all of that. Because it is written... And here he's going to quote a phrase that appears at least three different times in the book of Leviticus. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Yes, this is time for children to grow up to be more like their parents. To become worthy of that incorruptible inheritance we talked about. You've been begotten again, so act like it. okay, Obedient children. He then says in verse 17, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And by fear, we mean not fear of the w- wicked world all around us, but reverence to God. Trust in him. Lively hope that it's all going to work out because he's in charge of everything. It almost seems nonchalant on Peter's part to just say, oh, how sh- this is how you should pass the time. I mean, what we're doing right now is just sojourning. We're on our mortal experience, our mortal sojourn. And as we're Well, walking down the covenant path, how should we pass the time? Well, in reverence, in godly fear. Trust that all will be well, because it will be. Verse 18 then, he says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. In other words, what was it that saved you from those old false traditions? Things that were passed down from father to son that didn't come from the father of us all? Well, it, you're not going to be redeemed by corruptible things. Some silver image or golden God. That's not what will save you. What will? Next line. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him to believe in God that raised him up from the dead, And gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Ah, we have every reason to have faith and hope in God. Because of Christ. Christ is the proof that God is fully invested in our salvation. He sent him as a lamb without blemish. In fact, that lamb was prepared from before the foundation of the world. Think about that. To a Jewish audience with any kind of Old Testament background, lambs without blemish? Oh, they're thinking Passover. Well, they're probably thinking every sacrificial animal all the way through. But to go back to the Passover lamb, whereby the slaves can go free, Jesus is that lamb for us. Oh, but even go back before that. Before the Passover, this is, these are the lambs. This is the ram in the thicket that allowed Abraham to spare Isaac. Go back even further. This is the, these, these are the lambs that were offered by Adam and Eve as a reminder they'd not been cast out of Eden forever. I guess you can even go back earlier than that, because according to this passage, he was the lamb without blemish, prepared from before the foundation of the world. This is actually my favorite verse. On my mission, I fell in love with this because I could teach people that saw the fall as a tragedy. This verse helped clarify and correct that misperception. Because think about it. If the fall is a tragedy, if it was an unforeseen error on Eve's part, can you picture God up there in heaven looking down at these, these brand new creations? And then all, all of a sudden, Eve reaches for the fruit and God's up there going, no, 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 no. Ah, and he's holding his breath and, and hoping it doesn't happen, but it does. And then what's God going to do? Is he up there pacing back and forth in heaven? Like, oh, great. I, I thought for sure they'd last more than one generation. Why did I put that tree down there to begin with? Well, back to the drawing board. And then he's racking his mind, how do I get them out of this horrible mess that I didn't see coming? That's not an all-knowing God. No, we we know that God had a plan. And the question he asked in pre-mortality was not what shall we do? It was whom shall we send? And send to do what? To atone for the sins of the world, to be a sacrificial lamb. We need that first and foremost because I know that people will make mistakes. And they need to be able to learn from them. The fall will not be a tragedy. It will not be some unforeseen emergency. It's as much of the plan as anything else. In fact, the fall will remind them of their absolute need for the atonement. It will drive them to Jesus in ways that nothing else can. So while chronologically it goes creation, fall, atonement, logically it goes atonement, fall. Creation. It reverses it. Because logically, the most important part is the atonement. Here's the Father saying, I need a lamb without blemish prepared from before the foundation of the world. And if it's before creation, then it's definitely before fall. Okay, you understand how that works? If you know that Christ was foreordained, according to God's foreknowledge, the world will need a sacrificial animal, the world will need a Savior. So whom shall I send? And Jesus says, here am I, send me. The Father prepares the Son for that atoning mission. And then then the world is created and Adam and Eve fall so that our fallenness can convince us of our absolute need of Jesus Christ. There's something beautiful about that, that order of putting the atonement first. And Peter allows us to see that. A sacrificial animal before anything happened, even creation itself. Okay? From there, look at verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren. You see, you've been loving God and He's been loving you. That's the vertical first great commandment. But now you have unfeigned or unfaked, truly sincere love of one another. There's the horizontal side of things the second great commandment and since that's the case your love is so true so pure so sincere see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently how to go through hard things you will need each other this is paul's old fellowship of suffering and yes we're in it okay so love each other have a pure heart being born again there's that begotten again we saw at the beginning of the chapter. Not of corruptible seed, so forget the silver and gold out there, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So yes, forget corruptible idols, worship the Lamb of God. Forget corruptible physical nature and seek an incorruptible spiritual nature that comes as you are begotten again through Jesus Christ, through his word. Remember, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Well, if you want to be with God and become like God, then yes, in your beginning, you should begin with the word too. Scripture, living prophets, all those things that Peter himself is drawing upon to grant him the lively hope to get him through the hard days the same applies to all of us now turn to chapter 2 and you'll see Peter reminding his audience who they really are he's been teaching them who Jesus really is in chapter 1 to get through these hard things and we've we've got to get through them that's who we are that's the potential that's in all of us so pay close attention to your self-reflection You'll be able to see your, your image in Peter's words here. Verse 1. Wherefore, so again, because of everything I said in chapter 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. I mean, those are the kinds of things that are going to get in our way. And if we're going to love each other with unfeigned love, with pure hearts, then we have to stop backbiting. We've got to stop envying. We've got to stop speaking evil of one another. Can we just lay those aside? I love his verb there. Just lay it aside. Just drop it and quit picking it back up. Okay? Just give yourself a new start. That's what he says next. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Do you remember Paul's language about milk before meat? Oh yes, the meat will come. And Peter will talk about some of that meat a little later. But in the meantime, the sincere milk of the word, other translations call that the spiritual milk of the gospel. And to see, it's amazing what a baby can get out of its mother's milk. Everything that that baby needs, that newborn comes from the milk of its mother. And to see this milk of, not human kindness, but divine kindness, it's amazing how much growth a newborn experiences because of that milk. And the growth that Peter is encouraging in his hearers, if you'll just desire that milk. There's another translation that uses the word crave instead of desire. And I love that mental image because you picture a newborn baby They don't just patiently wait and go, Oh, a little milk would be nice now. No, they scream. They cry. They let the world know how desperately they want the milk that will help them grow. Is that how desperately you want? We should be more patient than a a baby, right? But we should have that kind of, of desire, that kind of hunger for it. Especially if we've tasted it already and tasted that the Lord is gracious. I love that Peter uses that sense rather than just seeing that God is gracious or hearing other people's testimony of his grace. No, taste it yourself. Because of all the senses, taste might be the hardest one to convey in words. No, you just got to try it. That's what Lehi was saying with the fruit of the tree of life. Just come and partake. It's the most delicious thing I've ever had in my life. That's what Alma said in Alma 32. Plant the seed in order to grow a tree of life of your own so you can eat that fruit, so you can taste it. Alma even said, talked about tasting light. Huh, what does that taste like? Well, I guess we'll have to try. But taste that the Lord is gracious and, oh, you'll want as much milk as as he's willing to offer. He then says in verse 4, To whom coming as unto a living stone... Remember, we had a lively hope. Well, now we have a living stone, disallowed indeed of men. So yes, Jesus was rejected by others, but chosen of God and precious. So ye also, as lively stones. Christ was the living stone, so you've got to be just as alive as he is. So as living stones, we can be built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Remember when Paul used this metaphor of Jesus as the chief cornerstone, that we are built upon a foundation of prophets and apostles, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, that's a beautiful construction imagery. Well, imagine if the cornerstone was alive, that it could adjust to things and, and shift burden and weight as, as different pressures are put on the building above. Well, Christ as a living stone, and the rest of us, as living stones extending out from him. Remember C.S. Lewis's famous quote about all of us being a living house that God is working on. Well, he's part of that house himself. Think of Paul talking about the temple as the body, or the veil of the temple as the body of Christ. And here's Christ as a living foundation beneath us. As a result, verse 6, Wherefore, so back to this, based on what we've said, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, and here Peter's going to quote Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. You know that. You have a testimony of that. You've tasted how precious he is. But unto them which be disobedient, and now he's going to quote a different Old Testament passage. He's going to mix together Psalm 118, verse 22, with Isaiah 8:14. I mean, I'm blown away how well Peter knows the scriptures. Yeah, he never quotes them in the Gospels, starts quoting them at length in the, in the book of Acts, and here he quotes them left and right and, and mashes them together and, and pulls out incredible insight from, from the old word. So, this is what he says, To those who are disobedient, here's your message. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. You understand what those verses are suggesting? Jacob will build on this in Jacob chapter 4, right before he teaches us the allegory of the olive tree. But this idea of this was the, the best stone you could have possibly used to build your spiritual lives upon, and you disregarded it, you disallowed it, what kind of builders are you? Well, instead of building upon it, you tripped over it. But the day will come where those, that discarded stone will become the head of the corner. No, those with eyes to see who Jesus really was, they built upon that rock. Those were the wise men. Forget the builders who didn't know what they were looking at. He then weaves together some other scripture, Peter does. And this time he brings in Exodus 19 and mixes it with Hosea chapter 2. And the result is amazing. Now, the beauty of Exodus 19 is it comes right before Exodus 20. It's how the numbers work. And if you remember, Exodus 20 is where we get the Ten Commandments. But to put in perspective what those commandments are meant to accomplish, you've got to read Exodus 20 in light of Exodus 19. Because in Exodus 19, the Lord tells Israel who they really are. He holds up this mirror and says, do you understand who you are? I don't think so. You think you're a bunch of recently emancipated slaves. You think you're nothing. And that's how you've been treated for century after century. But who do I know you to be? Listen to this. But ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood and holy nation a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light that's a glorious self-identification if we could embrace those titles and know they refer to us have them etched in the mirror so they can be engraven on our countenance notice the nouns you're a generation in greek that's genos you are a, a nation in greek that's ethnos think about who your who your genes are coming from okay your genus think about your your nation your ethnicity this is who you are think about being a people and being a priesthood and then notice the adjectives that the lord attaches to that string of nouns you are chosen And royal and holy and peculiar. And by peculiar, he doesn't mean strange, though that sometimes applies to some of us. By peculiar, you think of the word like something is peculiar to that person, it's unique to them, it defines them and nobody else. A peculiar people is a people that God claims as his own. And there's a possessive pronoun there. This is a, a peculiar treasure that he claims as his own. And it's us. We are his peculiar people. And why did he choose us? So that we, having been called out of darkness, how oh, no one's going to be able to appreciate the light quite like these people. They will bear witness of that light and let that light shine before men. That's, that's my hope for ancient Israel, and modern Israel as well. Peter is saying to his audience what Moses had said to his. This is who you are. Live up to it. Now that was the Exodus version, or Exodus part. The Hosea part is fascinating. Because you remember Hosea, this poor visual aid that was commanded by God to marry an, an unfaithful woman to show what God felt like being married to an unfaithful Israel? Well, they ended up having children, and one of the boys they named Lo Ami, and his, their daughter they named Lo Ruhama. And those are horrible names. Lo Amin means not my people, and Lo Ruhama means no mercy. Can you imagine calling your daughter that? Well, it was only that way for a time, because as time passed, they changed the names. They dropped the nots, and not my people became my people, and no mercy became mercy. Because God has mercy for those that are willing to accept it from him. To choose him as their God so he can choose them as his people. That's what Peter says next. So he just talked about who you are. The chosen generation, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the peculiar people. Which in time past were not a people. You used to be nobody. But are now the people of God. So you went from lo-ami to ami. And then the the next child, visual aid number two. You used to be a people which had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. And that mercy has come because of Jesus Christ. It's amazing to see ancient Israel become people worthy of the promised land. Occasionally they were, (laughs) occasionally they weren't. To picture those of Peter's day, will we live up to divine expectation? To look around us and look at ourselves. And if there was ever a time I was not deserving of God's mercy, but he gave it to me, a time when I wasn't his people, but then he allowed me to change. I want to be that peculiar treasure. I want to be that royal priesthood. Think about that. Royal, there's kings and queens. Priesthood, there's priests and priestesses. Who gets anointed in the Old Testament? Kings and priests. Royal priesthoods. And anointed is is Messiah, it's Christ. For him to choose us, to reflect his love to the rest of humanity, what an honor to be chosen of him. According to his foreknowledge, this lamb without blemish, prepared from before the foundation of the world. Do you see what Peter is trying to convey to his readers? To us included. Such powerful truths. He then says in verse 11 and 12, Dearly beloved. And that's how he feels about us. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And interesting that Peter would refer to them as that. I mean, think about what Paul said, that you're not strangers or foreigners. You're fellow citizens with the saints. But also remember from the Faith Hall of Fame that they, in a way, were strangers. They were pilgrims upon the earth because they knew this wasn't where they would permanently dwell. I'm just passing through mortality. It's just part of my sojourn here. But I'm waiting for a better country, a heavenly one. That's what Peter is hinting at here. You are strangers here. You are pilgrims upon the earth. This place isn't your permanent home. So, what should we do in the meantime? Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, in that passage, what he's saying is, since we don't really belong here, please don't partake of mortal culture. We don't. We're just passing through. Just a pilgrim. No need to learn the language of lasciviousness. No need to give in to the fleshly lusts. Uh, This is not the culture I'm trying to, to espouse as my own. Nope. I'm from a a heavenly country, and we do things differently there. Now, that's a a healthy way to, to maintain your own worthiness and your own faith. But it does make it tricky to fit in with the natives. Okay, And that's one of the hard things that these saints are dealing with. No wonder they're being persecuted and opposed. As Peter says here, there are people who are speaking against you as evildoers. They look at you and you're different. You're not worshipping Caesar. You're not worshipping the Roman pantheon. You're worshipping some being called Christ. What is this? You And and any problems that are going on. Remember the the, the history of Nero. when, When Rome is burning, he ends up blaming the Christians as its cause. And so if anything that goes wrong in the empire can be pinned on Christians, that you're the evildoers, Oh, they're going to be spoken against left and right. But notice the advice that Peter is giving them. If they're speaking against you as evildoers, fine. Just make sure they're not telling the truth about you. (laughs) In other words, don't be that kind of evildoer. Instead, by your good works, which they will behold, they'll see that. They may have heard rumors that you're doing wrong things, but what are their own eyes telling them? Now, these Christians are amazing maybe their God is amazing too. And when they see your good works, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, do those phrases sound familiar at all? Since Peter was there at the Sermon on the Mount and heard Jesus say to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, Peter's basically saying the same thing. Let your light shine in darkness. People will see how you act and will be drawn to find out why you live the way you do. All glory to God as a result. In verse 13, he then says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man or every mortal order for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme, there's Caesar for you, or unto governors, since you're all in these different areas of Asia Minor, you've got a more local Roman governor over you. But yes, submit yourself to them as well. Do it as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Because that's what your government leaders will end up doing, right? They punish the evildoers. They praise the people that are doing right. Well, make sure you're part of the second group, even though people accuse you of being part of the first Eventually the king or the governors will recognize your good works. Okay? For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's those foolish men that are making these false accusations. So do the right thing, well-doing, and they won't have anything to say about you. This is living above reproach. This is giving people no cause to complain. And trust that those government leaders will begin to recognize that. Remember back in the letters of Paul, he talked about being subject to the powers that be. Well, this is Peter's version of that. Now, he says, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. And there's a good reminder that, yes, as Christians, you are free. You have agency. But like Paul had said, don't let your freedom, don't let your liberty become an excuse to cause problems to other people. In a similar way here, yes, you're free to live the gospel, free to do what you should. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Don't presume upon Christ's grace. But also, it's not a get-out-of-government-trouble well, card. Because we have to learn to be good citizens as well as good saints. We have to honor the people that are in charge because it's, we're not in charge yet. The day will come when the Lord will return. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Can you hear Handel's Messiah sing? But until then, try to endure it well. Until then, submit yourself to the people that are placed over you. And don't ruffle feathers and don't rock the boat. Just live as peaceably and in as Christ-like a way as you can. And things will change from the inside out instead of the coming from the outside in. Hold on to that thought. We're going to see it repeated several more times. But in the meantime, what should we be doing? Look at verse 17. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Just kind of bullet points. This is how you should treat those around you. Okay. Now, let's get more specific. Servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. In other words, obey the ones that are easy to obey and even obey the ones that are hard. This takes it on to a more personal level than what he said in the previous passage. First, it was be good subjects to the king. Well, now be good servants to your masters. They're in charge. And... And unfortunately, we're in no position to change the imperial institution of slavery right now. But if you can be Christ-like servants, perhaps your masters will become equally Christ-like. And change can come in that way. He then says in verse 19, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. In fact, it's not just thankworthy, it's praiseworthy. For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye you shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, ah, this is acceptable with God. You see what he's saying there? If you're suffering rightfully, as in you deserve it, then yeah, you should be able to handle that with a certain degree of patience because you brought it upon yourself. You have no one else to blame. There's no use in grumbling because it's your own fault. On the other hand, if you're suffering wrongfully, you don't deserve it. And yet you can turn the other cheek. You can endure it well. Ooh, that says something about you. To be a guilty convict, that doesn't say much. But to be an innocent one and to be able to handle it well, that speaks volumes about your own submission to whatever it is you're dealing with. Think, about, think back to the Sermon on the Mount on this one, too. If you only love those that love you, big deal. Even publicans can do that. If you suffer patiently things you brought upon yourself, okay, it's, you're the only one to blame. But it's, can you do it when, you, when it's undeserving? And that's what the saints are dealing with. That's what Peter's facing himself. And yet to rejoice in the trial of his faith that is being purified as something so much more precious than gold. To be okay with that. That is thankworthy and praiseworthy discipleship. We'll see that idea several times coming up as well. And so let me just introduce this thought from Elder Richard G. Scott. He taught that if you're suffering, first thing to ask yourself is if you brought it upon yourself. Is this because of the way I'm living? If so, then change. Repent. It's kind of, in some ways, it's nice to go, oh wait, I'm the one doing this to my. But to myself, I'll stop. And it'll, and it'll make that trial go away. On the other hand, Elder Scott said, if you, if you search your own conscience and realize, yes, though I'm not perfect, I did not cause this trial. There's nothing I can do to avoid it then. Well, what do I do? I cheerfully submit. I can't change it, but I can learn from it. And that's going to be the advice Peter will give repeatedly to his fellow suffering saints. Okay? That, that is good counsel for us. Can I change it, or must I simply learn from it? Either way, accept it. It's part of the trial of our faith. He then says in verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth who when he was reviled reviled not again when he suffered he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously in other words christ has been keeping every piece of advice that peter has been giving us he set the ultimate example of submission to injustice even he submitted to herod he submitted to pilate he he submitted to god And just trusted that God was over all these things and that it was going to be okay when all was said and done. That's the kind of example that Peter is asking us to follow. To follow his steps. Actually, that phrase is where Charles Sheldon got the title of his book. And his book was called In His Steps. It was a game changer when it was first published, I think over a hundred years ago. It's... It's where we get the idea of what would Jesus do. Because in this book, in his steps, it's some Midwestern community that the preacher, the pastor at church, talks about the importance of following the steps of Jesus. Maybe his sermon was from 1 Peter chapter 2. And people actually took it seriously. They changed everything. How they treated each other, how they ran their businesses. They truly asked the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then had the courage to actually do it. When I read that years ago as a college kid, I didn't know if it was fact or fiction. I didn't know if it was a novel or a history. And I wanted it to be historical so bad. I wanted to find out where this town was and move there because the neighborhood sounded incredible. I'll admit when I found out it was a novel, fiction, I was devastated until I realized maybe that's the point. If you want it to be true, then make it so. Start living that way yourself. Jesus set the ultimate example in every area. In this one, it's submissive suffering. But in all aspects, if we would simply follow his steps, imagine the life that we would live. Peter's hoping that for his people. The chapter then ends, verse 24 and 25, speaking of Jesus, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Remember that phrase? That comes straight out of Isaiah 53, verse 5. That great suffering servant song. And if that's 53, 5, go back one verse. And what did 53, 4 say? All we like sheep... Have gone astray? Well, listen to this from Peter. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Beautiful descriptions of Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He is the great bishop that we can come to for all the help we'll ever need. He laid down his life for his sheep. And so we'll be come unto him. That's the invitation. From there in chapter 3, Peter is going to oh channel a little internal James and try to teach us a little practical Christianity here, particularly in our relationships. He's already talked a bit about subjects or citizens being subject to kings and governors and servants being subject to masters. Are there any other relationships we can work on to be able to keep the peace. Well, here's one. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. And that's following the same line of thought we saw in chapter 2. Okay? Servants subject to their masters. Citizens subject to their governors. Here, wives subject to their husbands. This is simply in keeping with Greco-Roman society. Or Jewish tradition. That, that's just the way things are. And remember, we can only work from the inside out, not the outside in. Just like those servants needed to behave in Christ-like ways to their masters in hopes the masters would respond in kind. We see a similar thing here as counsel to Christian women. But notice the specifics in what we see next. Wives, be in subjection to your husbands, that if any obey not the word, and there we're talking about those husbands, they don't obey the word because they never embraced it. This is, these are part-member families that Peter is talking about. A Christian wife and a non-Christian husband. And how is the Christian wife going to live within this kind of circumstance? Especially since they've learned from Jesus and from people like Peter and Paul that there's an equality. That there, within the gospel there is no male nor female. It doesn't matter. You're one. without the, Neither the man without the woman or the woman without the man in the Lord. That's what Paul taught. Peter's going to teach similar things in just a moment. But here, if your husband is not a believer, are you going to pull rank on him? Are you going to say, oh no, in my church, we're equal partners. And he's like, well, it ain't my church. And now I don't even want to hear anything about your church. I don't like your church. If it's going to turn the tables on Greco-Roman society. No, forget the whole thing. Now, notice how careful Peter's going to be in his advice. He talks about these non-member husbands, if any obey not the word, well, imagine, sister saints, if your Christ-like submissiveness to them, if they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. And remember, conversation means conduct. How How do you live? How do you treat them? If you come in guns ablazing, blazing and try to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, if you try to shame them into some kind of shallow conversion or pressure them into, into a Christian commitment, it's not going to work. But what if you came without the word from outside that kind of perspective and simply won them over by your Christian conversation? Your Christian conduct, that is. Imagine if your non-member husband looked at you and said, honey, what's different about you? You, I don't know. There's like a, a, a hope. I would almost call it lively. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, there is a, I don't know. You just seem so easygoing. Uh, you're submissive, but in, a, in the strangest, most confident kind of way. I, I, I can't put my finger on it. it. But it seems like you've come into your own. And yet, the way you honor me and, and love me, and I don't know what it is. And with a twinkle in her eye, she could say, oh, it's something I learned at church. And he's like, huh? Maybe I want to look into this church thing a little bit more. Remember what Paul had taught to the Corinthians, that the believing wife can sanctify the unbelieving husband, or switch the genders, and the believing husband can sanctify the unbelieving wife. As long as one person in the marriage is living the gospel, there's hope that the other might follow, if you live the gospel in in a submissive kind of way, instead of shoving it down their throat. Okay, the way he puts it in the next line, while they behold your chaste conversation, that is your chaste conduct, coupled with fear, that's what's going to make the biggest difference. Okay, and it's not fear of offending your husband, it's fear of offending God, because God wants this marriage to work for your husband's sake, as well as for yours. If it's possible to dwell together in love, then let patience have her perfect work and let your example begin to work on your companion. He may end up becoming a covenant companion after all. I actually remember a woman that we taught in, well, she, was a, 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 she joined the church a year before I got there on my mission. And she was on fire to the point of singeing her poor husband. Now, he was not a member, she was. So it's totally like this experience. And she loved the gospel, loved who it helped her become, and how she she saw herself. And man, she wanted her husband to join the church with all her soul. And she let him know it. Now, the missionaries had been teaching him for a year by the time I got there. And he's like, "I, I love what the church has done for my wife, but it's not for me. And part of the problem, as we watched them interact, she was the more, she was a feeler, and he was a thinker. And she was just, I mean, taste the Book of Mormon. And boy, did I taste the graciousness of God. And so I'm all in. And for him, it was more, I I don't understand it all yet. I need to study more. And I've got more questions. And she would just get so frustrated and impatient with him and say, "Ah, why do you ask these stupid questions? Just read it. It's true. And get, get baptized for crying out loud. And he's like, well, forget it then. You don't even have answers yourself. And he'd close the book and then close the conversation. Well, as we got to know them both we realized number 1 he is a golden investigator he's amazing but number 2 she's getting in her own way her zeal untempered by patience is she's her own worst enemy and his as well how could we teach some kind of advice similar to what Peter's teaching to just allow the process to unfold naturally Well, we went and talked to her one day and said, you know, sister, you're an amazing missionary. You are so full of zeal and excitement and desire to share. I love it. But I realized that when we started our mission, they sent us to the missionary training center and you didn't get that chance. So what do you think we give you a little mini MTC here in your home? And she was like, you do that for me? And we're like, yeah, because you really need it. Uh, (laughs) We didn't say that, but it was like, yeah, if you just learn how to Get out of your own out of your own way. Miracles will happen. Well, we gave her a one day crash course in, in missionary skills, some wise as serpents and harmless as doves kind of advice. We taught her about patience and and allowing people to ask questions and explore things at their own pace and so on. By the end of our little mini MTC, she said, hilarious, in Spanish, she said, ser misionero hay que ser suave. Which means, man, to be a missionary, you gotta be smooth. I don't know if I'd ever been called suave before, but I thought, oh, I like that. And yes, you got to be pretty smooth to be a missionary. You Christian women in mixed, marriage, in mixed faith marriages, you're going to have to be more suave than most. In a couple where both husband and wife have joined the church, then of course equal partners. Neither the man without the woman nor the woman without the man. Neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. That is the freedom and equality that Christ has given you. But if you're not in that kind of marriage and want to be, then please be patient. Please be suave. And this could work on your husband's heart. There's something beautiful about that indirect and more patient approach. Now, he says one more thing to these wives, though. He describes them as those whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning, Of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. I mean, that's what all the other Greco-Roman women are doing. They're trying to be seen of men. They're trying to influence people by their beauty. Well, forget that. How about inner beauty? That's what Peter suggests. Let it be the hidden man, or in this case, the hidden woman. Other translations call it the inner self. Let it be the inner self of the heart in that which is not corruptible even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. That's the kind of influence you can wield. That's inner beauty, as other translations render it, unfading. The kind that can really change a heart instead of just attract an eye. Peter is asking these Christian women, these sister saints, to live the gospel in a patient and faithful kind of way. Trusting that the Lord will take care of things from there. And he will. He says in verse 5, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. So they honor their husbands as an internal thing, and they trusted in God for the external things. Okay, That's how they did it in the past. Let me give you an example. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. And I do wonder if that amazement was the equality in Christ that the gospel brought them. Amazed that really? I'm just as important as my husband? Of course you are. You're an help meet for him, just like he's an help meet for you. There's no difference between male and female in the eyes of God. It's like, what's wow, amazing? Well, yes, but don't let that amazement, don't, don't force that into the face of your non-member husband. Okay? Allow him to grow in, in, in an understanding of the truth, and he'll begin to see these things himself. He'll be amazed right alongside you. Okay? So yeah, ser suave. Then he flips it in verse 7. And he begins speaking to the other side of the family. Now, he can't speak to the non-member husbands because they're not going to listen to him. But to the member husbands, how's some advice for you? Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. And what's that knowledge? That she's your equal. What's that knowledge? That you must never exercise unrighteous dominion. Okay? He spells it out in the next phrase. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, unfortunately, this occasionally became one of those snicker scriptures I talked about before that would come up sometimes in seminary. When an immature young man assigned the spiritual thought would come up with a thought that was neither spiritual nor very well thought out. And he'd bring up a verse from Paul, for example, about women being silent in church. Or this verse from Peter saying that women were weaker vessels. And then he'd snicker his way back to his seat as he laughed that girls were weaker than boys. Come on. Did you miss the first phrase, to give honor unto your wife as unto the weaker vessel? Huh. So in context, this is not a cut down. This is a a term of endearment. There's something about this vessel that deserves greater honor, not less, not less honor. I'm not looking down on this vessel. I'm looking up to it. So weak must not be the right way to describe it. To those young men, I would say, I'd stop stop them and go, whoa, whoa, wait, let's see what Peter really means by this. Uh, Let's, okay, let's say, okay, a vessel, picture some kind of container. And which are you, you manly man? you look more like a dutch oven the girl you're making fun of seems more like a porcelain vase or a crystal vase if we want to sound more elegant now dutch ovens are pretty important cast iron right and you take out camping or and it's banging around the rocks and the trees i wouldn't do that with a porcelain vase i wouldn't bring out the good china but for a centerpiece to hold the bouquet of flowers that I brought home. Yeah, I don't think I'd use a Dutch oven for that. It takes something away from that centerpiece. No, I would want to honor what's there by bringing a more honorable vessel. And yes, it might be more fragile, if you want to say that. It might be more delicate. But it need, it deserves to be treated with that delicacy, with that carefulness, with that caution. There is a gift to the sensitivity that we're all supposed to develop, but that God's daughters seem to have in such abundance. And to see, I mean, there's there's strengths and weaknesses in both genders, which is why we need each other, right? And I think back to what what. Harold B. Lee's daughter said that I'll always be grateful. I I was raised by a father that was gentle beneath his firmness and a mother that was firm beneath her gentleness. Both parents were proving their own contraries. And then the male-female were proving the contraries between them. It's one of the most important contraries we can ever prove. And so to honor the wife, husbands, we know we should do that. And if we're not, then we know better. This is according to knowledge, he said. Are we giving them honor? If there's submission on one side, is there honor on the other? Does it go both ways? And especially the next phrase? I mean, again, these snicker scriptures, like read the whole thing, young man. Because before, it's giving honor, and then right after, they are heirs together. How's that for equality? How's that for equality? neither the man without the woman, nor the woman without the man in the Lord. Heirs together, lest your prayers be hindered. Mm, That's interesting. That there's something about couples' prayer that requires couples' equality. That if I'm pulling rank, or I'm exercising unrighteous dominion, or saying it's got to be my way, picture husband and wife lifting their prayers to heaven but one lifting higher than the other, because it's what they really want, and the other hasn't really bought into it. Well, if you're lifting a platter to God with your prayer on it, and now it tips, and your petition comes crashing back down to earth, no, we've got to be equally yoked on this. I've used this analogy before. Picture a car that has the steering wheel on one side and the gas and brake pedal on the other. And yeah, that couple's going to have to communicate and come into a unanimous decision. Or that car's going nowhere. Understand? There's something powerful about this, and we need to understand it if we're going to get along within the home, let alone get along within old Greco-Roman society. Peter then says in verse 8, Finally, so he's coming to some kind of conclusion in this portion of how we get along in our mortal relationships. He says, Finally, be ye all of one mind I mean, that's a requirement of Zion, right? One heart, one mind. Husbands and wives getting on the same page. If we're all one in this, having compassion one of another, the Greek word there, by the way, is sympathais. Can you hear the sympathy there inherent in compassion? Or the next phrase, love as brethren. The Greek word there is philadelphoi, as in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Be pitiful," he says, and not that kind of pitiful. Be full of pity, be tender-hearted and be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile, let him eschew evil. And do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Or pursue it, as we would say. I love that passage. Simple, straightforward, but just reminding us that your relationships really matter. And if someone is sending evil your way, don't respond in kind. As a Christian, learn to absorb it and metabolize it and give back its opposite You sent me evil. I'm not going to spit that poison back in your face. No, I will send love in return. Where do you think Peter learned that? From a Savior who said to love your enemy, to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And the saints are being used and persecuted during this period. We have to learn to get along. Actually, the way he puts it, if you want to love life, if you want to see good days, these are the secrets of a happy life. Just learn to get along with everyone. He then says in verse twelve, putting this in kind of time perspective, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. You ever seen somebody whose face really does seem to be against you, giving you that glare? It's like, ooh, I'm in trouble. Well, yes, those that do evil will be in trouble, but you don't have to punish them. Let the Lord do it. Leave it in his capable hands. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? I mean, if you're doing what's right, if you're following righteousness, then who cares if there's someone out to get you? Who is he that will harm you? The Lord is on your side. He says, but and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror. Or their threats, that is, neither be troubled. How oh, You have nothing to fear when God's on your side. If you're suffering for the truth, then you're in good company. Jesus taught Peter that in the Sermon on the Mount too. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Oh yeah, happy are ye who rejoice. Remember back in the book of Acts when Peter alongside John were pummeled in prison and threatened if they ever talked about Jesus again? And as soon as they were released, they went limping back to the Temple Mount to pick up where they left off, rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. This is the same Peter, encouraging the same strength and conviction for everyone else. He then says in verse 15, and this is one of my favorite things Peter ever said. Every phrase here is worth pondering. He says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I love that. Now, here's what Peter is recommending. We have to be ready to give an answer. We have to be ready to defend the faith. Because the word answer there is more defense than simply response. The Greek word is apologion. That's where we get the English word apologetics. And apologetics is not an apology. It's not saying, sorry, I believe this. It's saying, this is why I believe this. Apologetics is more of a scholarly defense of the faith. The opposite of apologetics is polemics. A polemicist is like the lawyer for the prosecution. An apologist is like the lawyer for the defense. Okay, And so here's Peter leading this beleaguered group of suffering saints. And when people attack you, when they falsely accuse you, when they, uh, uh, they say that you're an evildoer and they blame the empire's problems on you, you're going to have to be able to defend the faith. You're going to have to be able to give an answer, an account to anyone that asks you Actually, it's interesting because last week in James, we talked about letting people ask. Well, here in Peter, it's we better be ready to answer. (laughs) I actually had a student, an institute student years ago. We were talking about the need to become safe conversation partners and encourage those around you. Let them ask you. Okay, kind of the stuff we talked about last week. This young man was so excited about that. He's like, oh, I, I really want to be that safe conversation partner. I want to make sure my friends know they can come and ask me. Just one last question. What if it works? And he had like this look of panic. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if I'm a good conversation partner and they do feel comfortable asking, they probably will. But then what do I do? I don't know the answers. Like, ah, oh, yeah, those would kind of be helpful, huh? So thank you, Peter, for the reminder that we better prepare ourselves and be ready to do so. Now, that doesn't mean we have to know all the answers in advance. How can we? Most of the time, we don't even know the questions yet until someone raises them. But to be ready to try, to be ready to go down that journey with them, to be ready to hear them out without getting judgmental or harsh, to be suave, like we said before, to be submissive and patient and let them have their say. And then with the help of God, respond in a loving way. That's the kind of Christian apologetics that Peter is recommending. Not a Bible bash. Not proof texting. Not shaming someone into intellectual acquiescence. No. In fact, look at the way it's phrased. We are supposed to be ready, always, at the drop of a hat, any moment, to give an answer to every man that asketh you. For what? Notice what they're demanding, or asking, if they're nice. A reason. Now the Greek word there comes from the word logos. And there's the Word, as in the Word made flesh. They want a reason. Reason is, Logos is the argument, the the point that you're trying to make. And that's what this questioner is asking of you. I want rational explanation. Why, Why do you live this way? Why do you believe? Why do you have a lively hope? But notice the next phrase. They're asking you a reason for the hope that is in you. Hmm, there's that lively hope again. But do you sense the difference? Do you, can you sense a contrary forming here that we need to prove? Because a reason, that's more head. But hope, that's more heart. Section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says that he speaks to the mind and the heart. Later on in the Doctrine and Covenants, he recommends us seeking learning by study, that's the head, and by faith, that's the heart hmm, there's something about balancing those two body parts when we are coming to a knowledge of the truth. Yes, some of it will be intellectual, but some of it will be spiritual. And the irony here is these people are coming asking a reason. But it's a reason for your hope. I've used this analogy before that often when I'm speaking with somebody, especially the more hostile skeptics, It sometimes feels like a conversation between the Tin Man and the Scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz. They're the Tin Man because they claim that they have no heart because they won't let you address it. Don't you dare bear your testimony to me. I don't even believe in the Holy Ghost anymore, so it's not going to do a thing. I want rational explanation. I want you to prove to me that the Church is true. Hmm. Okay. Meanwhile that tin man without the heart unfortunately tends to look at you and accuse you of being the scarecrow without any brain and so no wonder you still believe all you have is your heart that's what you're holding on to well often when I'm in those conversations I will let them know okay fine so you're hostile to the heart, you don't believe in spirit you want a head only you're demanding a reason, okay I will try to limit myself to that. And we can just talk history, and we can talk logic, and we can talk rational, empirical kinds of things. That's fine. I do believe that the gospel has a rational leg to stand on. God does speak to the mind. He wants us to study by, or learn by study. Okay, I get that. But it's insufficient at the end of the day, and necessarily so. So yeah, we'll have our conversation. It's like the dentist that I just left. When they put the lead shield over your chest, that nothing will reach the heart okay if that's how I have to respond to you fine but I do want you to know while I'm giving you these reasons at the end of the day it's still hope that lies at the core of my faith that's not going to change I wouldn't want it to do you understand the difference To me, it's a really fascinating thing. But also notice the way the verse begins and the way the verse ends. If we jumped into these apologetics and we're trying to prove to people and they want a reason, oh, I'll give them a reason and I'll best them with my superior logic or intellect. Well, then you missed the last phrase. You've got to do it with meekness and fear. Fear of offending the other person or offending the spirit that will not be present wherever there is contention because that's of the devil. I learned it the hard way on my mission that Bible bashing is always wrong because even when you win, you lose. You lose the spirit and you lose the relationship that you were trying to maintain. It doesn't work. So the only option must be Christ-like apologetics infused with meekness and fear. And for that, go back to the first line of the, phrase, of the verse. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's got to be the first step. Usually when I'm about to do an interfaith dialogue, or if I'm going to face someone that I know we're going to tend to disagree, I'll go reread a talk from Robert D. Hales called Christian Courage. Because yes, I'll need the courage to stand by my convictions, the courage to give reason and defend the faith. But I've got to have Christian courage. I must be Christ-like in all that I do because that person matters. And so if I'm sanctifying the Lord God in my heart, see, I, I read that talk from Elder Hales to get myself in the right mindset. I'm not here to Bible bash. I'm not here to prove or shame or anything. I'm here to understand and hear and listen and love and hopefully learn together. If this is for God's glory and not mine, then I'm going to approach this conversation in a more Christ-like way. And so from the very beginning, I'm sanctifying God in my heart. And now I'm ready to give answer for hope in meekness. I don't know a better verse that sums up so much in so few words. It's beautiful. Peter then says in verse 16, Having a good conscience, and you'll have one of those if you do verse 15 right. But having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or your good conduct in Christ. I think this is the second, maybe the third time where he's brought up this idea. There are those out there that are speaking evil of you, fine Don't prove them right by the way you respond to it. Prove them wrong by turning the other cheek and treating them as friends and loving them. Do good. And instead of them shaming you, they'll end up being ashamed at their attempts to do so. What was I thinking? Those are really nice people. They didn't get angry at me when I falsely accused them. Oh, they took the higher moral ground, and that makes me want to climb a little myself. You with me? Go on, and Peter says, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And he said that before also. I'd rather be suffering unjustly than justly. I don't want to know that I brought this upon myself, right? I'd rather know that, okay, I'm innocent, and that's okay. I'm, I'm happy to suffer knowing I didn't do anything to deserve it. And speaking of innocent suffering, Peter says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. For Peter, it always comes back to Jesus Christ. Follow his example. Walk in his steps, including when those steps lead to Calvary and the cross. If we're willing to do that, we're in the best company that's ever lived. Now, speaking of Jesus and what he accomplished in that, that Christ-like submission, the next passage is, is breathtaking. It's one that we Latter-day Saints latch on to because we understand it in deeper ways than anyone else does. First Peter chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, by which also he, Jesus, went and preached unto the spirits in prison. It was that suffering self-sacrifice that parted the veil and allowed him to go to the spirit world, where he could then preach to the spirits in prison. And then he describes them in interesting terms, which sometime were disobedient, or the JST, some of whom were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Now pause here because some amazing doctrine is about to burst forth on the world. At least that's what happened in 1918 when Joseph F. Smith, right at the end of his life, was studying First Peter and pondering the atonement of Jesus Christ. He got to these verses and started wondering and wrestling, how does that work? What does he mean by Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison? And all of a sudden, a flood of light opened upon Joseph F. Smith. This is what we see in section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And it explains Christ's post-mortal ministry. Those few days between crucifixion and resurrection where Christ himself is in the spirit world and organizes the forces of the righteous to go out and preach the gospel to the spirits of the dead. Go back and, and reread DNC d D&C 138. Go listen to that episode of the podcast. It's such a powerful vision and it grows out of what we just read. Now, for centuries... Theologians and scholars have scratched their head over that passage. And what exactly does that mean? Preaching to the spirits in prison? Is that metaphorical we're talking about? Is that people there on the earth that have not known the, the truth and the truth has not yet set them free? So they're there in prison and Jesus is preaching to them? Okay, maybe. And yeah, maybe. But far beyond that. There are others that speak of this descent into hell on Jesus' part. And what is he doing there? Well, this verse suggests that he's preaching the gospel somehow. Does that mean there's hope for those that are there to somehow emerge? Otherwise, why would Jesus waste his breath or waste his time? Huh. Well, again, glorious light of the restoration. We understand exactly what that that verse is talking about. But something I think we, even we Latter-day Saints, sometimes underappreciate. Is the way he described it, bringing in the story of Noah and the ark. Now, slow down and let's figure this out, because it's, it's breathtaking. He's describing Jesus going to the spirit world and preaching to the spirits in prison. Now, usually in our understanding, we think that those are the people that never had a chance to hear it in this life, they missed the opportunity. Technically, this is called the fate of the unevangelized. They never got evangelized. They never got the gospel, the evangel, the good news given to them. So they never had a chance to react to it and decide to accept or reject. Well, they've got to have that chance for God to be fair. And so, of course, Jesus is going to go and preach to the spirits there in prison. Or like Joseph Smith Smith learned, he's going to organize the righteous to do just that. You with me? Okay, fine. But when Peter mentions some examples what kind of people are we talking about that are there in prison that are going to get their chance to hear the gospel? He doesn't say the ignorant. He says the disobedient. Huh? Oh, but they were probably sinning in ignorance. They were disobedient because they didn't know any better. Ah, there you go. And then Peter's like, well, not, not entirely. Yes, those ones are included as well. I'll give you some examples. Now, if I'm talking about people that are in the spirit world, then I've got a, quite the population of possibilities. If I want to use, choose a poster child... For people in the spirit world that are waiting to be taught the gospel, who should I pick? Oh, I I got it. How about the victims of the flood? And I'm sitting there going, what? Them? They get a chance? Oh, no, no, no. They had their chance. For 120 years, Noah preached the gospel to them. Building the ark by day and teaching missionary discussions by night, or however he did it. They had their chance. They rejected it. Now if they rejected it in life, of course they're going to reject it in the spirit world, so don't waste your time on them. They had their opportunity. Peter would say not so fast. I'm sure Noah was a good missionary. But did they fully understand the consequences of their sin? Or had they gone to some point of no return that evil was so normalized that they didn't really understand the call to repent? I don't know their level of accountability. I don't lo- know their level of understanding. So let's make sure we give them all a chance in the spirit world. Even those ones. I had a close friend on my mission. We were never companions, but man, we, we loved serving on trade-offs together. They more than And he and I would often have these deep conversations about what constitutes a real opportunity for someone to accept or reject the gospel. And we both wondered... Have we ever taught a discussion well enough to count fully as the perfect opportunity for them to exercise their agency? Or will they be in the spirit world hearing from celestial missionaries and then thinking back, that sounds vaguely familiar. There were a couple of gringos back in Puerto Rico when I was alive. They said something along those lines, but man, their Spanish was horrible. Or they didn't really have the spirit with them when they did. Or... Whatever other reasons, I didn't give them the best opportunity they could have had. Elder Mortensen and I would always talk about getting as close as we possibly could in our feeble effort to that kind of celestial level in hopes that a Puerto Rican would say, Ah, yes, that's exactly what Elder Halverson and Elder Mortensen taught me. That's why I accepted the gospel. And here I am in the spirit world being a missionary and doing a better job than they did. But they were close, right? you understand what I'm getting at here? It it should give us all hope for the future, for anyone, even those raised in the gospel that have walked away from it. If even the disobedient in the days of Noah are chosen as poster children for opportunities to learn the gospel in the spirit world, then everyone will have the fullest opportunity imaginable to accept the invitation to come unto Christ, I'm grateful for that. I'm also grateful for the next phrase. This is an interesting one, because speaking of those in the ark, that's how he ended verse 20. Notice verse 21 and 22. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not not putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, that's a strange way to end the chapter, but let's understand what Peter's saying here. He just used the flood victims as the example of they're going to get a chance, okay? Don't worry. But then he, he talks about the ark and is sitting there thinking, man, only eight people made it. That's a tiny fraction of the world's population at the time. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Four four Adams and four Eves ready to repopulate the planet. Okay, We're going to start from scratch and reboot the whole system. But only eight survivors? Wow. And then Peter says, yeah, it's a lot like baptism, isn't it? And we're like, huh? (laughs) That's how he said. The like figure, even like baptism. How is the Ark like baptism? Well, let's put it this way. The Ark was what saved people from the water. Well, in baptism, they're saved through the water. Although I'll I'll explain that a little bit more in a second. But what he's getting at is how infinitesimally small a fraction of survivors there were. Only eight on the Ark? Well, how many people actually get the chance to be baptized in this life? A tiny fraction. Hmm, does that mean baptism doesn't matter? Well, the ark certainly mattered, right? Baptism is essential. Ask Nicodemus about that, right? Jesus' words, you have to be born of water and of the spirit or you cannot enter in the kingdom of God. Oh, he's serious. But what about those who never got the chance? They'll get the chance. So few were saved by the ark. So few are saved by baptism in this life. We'll give them another chance. And so on the heels of teaching about work for the dead in terms of the spirit world preaching the gospel, Here is another nod to baptism for the dead. Because baptism for the living only touches a fraction of God's children. Remember when Paul taught about baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15? A chapter dedicated to the resurrection. Well, here he's speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and hinting that there are more opportunities than merely mortal baptism. For people to receive that ordinance and be saved in the Ark of the Covenant. You understand? It's really powerful how he's doing all of this. It's amazing to me. But also how he says it, it's not putting away the filth of the flesh. It's answering a good conscience. That's what baptism really is all about. It's not about the water. And so, yes, there's no water in the spirit world to wash away filth of the flesh. But by accepting what is being done for them on earth, their conscience can be clear. That's what baptism was to begin with. As I always used used to tell the little eight-year-olds, it's not the water that's washing away your sin. Make no mistake. It's Jesus that is cleansing your conscience because you're willing to submit to anything he asks you to do. That's the same is true of those on the other side. Okay. Powerful ending of chapter 3. And then we turn to chapter 4. And here we're back to the idea of suffering, because that always seems to be waiting in the wings. It's hard to get over that, because all these wonderful doctrines, and I'm cherishing this theology, and then, ah, but there's people persecuting me. Okay, let's get back to that then. Chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Now, there's a JST to that second verse that makes it slightly more (laughs) understandable, but we're going to have to walk through that one too. JST says, For you who have suffered in the flesh should cease from sin. In the King, King James Version, it's more like an automatic. Hey, you suffered in the flesh, you've obviously ceased from sin. No, JST says, well, you should cease from sin that you no longer the rest of your time in the flesh should live to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Now, what he means here is, if you've had to suffer for your sins, you'd think that that would cure you of ever wanting to sin again. You've suffered in the flesh, and therefore you should cease from sin. It's like, ooh, that's the consequence? Don't want to do that again. In some ways, prison is supposed to be the cure for crime. Unfortunately, it isn't, but in a best-case scenario, prison is just bad enough that people who are now returned to society think, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to commit the sin that, or the crime that brought me there. My wife deals with this constantly in the world of addiction recovery. And to, realize, to become clean, sober, to be in recovery, I don't ever want to go back to a life of addiction because that's the worst. There's suffering there. I don't want to go back. Now, what's interesting about this passage is how it's connected to the first verse. Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, and then he talks about if you've suffered for sin, then you you probably don't want to commit sin again. And bringing Jesus into the conversation brings it up a level. It's one thing for me to suffer because I deserve it. Think about how many times Peter has talked about that already. Okay. Uh, You should take that one on the chin because you brought it upon yourself. Now, hopefully you learn from it and you change and repent and don't recommit it. Okay? You with me? But let's bring Jesus into into the discussion. And you want to talk about innocent suffering. Unfair. Jesus went through all of that for all of us. He took upon himself our sins. It's one thing for me to be punished for something I did. It's another thing for someone else to be punished for something I did. I feel horrible when that happens. Well, then let that work in you. And let the fact that Christ suffered in the flesh be an end of sin for us. Overcome the danger of recidivism. I don't want to go back to prison. I certainly don't want to send Jesus back there. To take more stripes for me. No wonder, Peter says, that we should arm ourselves with the same mind. I wonder if this goes back to the idea of girding the loins of your mind. Because here, the same mental, hold on to it, in fact, arm yourself with this thought. We talk about the shield of faith to resist fiery darts. Well, imagine these fiery temptations leading us away, and not just the shield of faith, not just the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and all this whole armor of God. What if my mind were armed with thoughts of the atonement of what Jesus went through for me and a desire on my part never to make him suffer again for anything on my account. To me, there's something powerful about that kind of armament. Maybe the sword of the Spirit and the Word is not our only weapon we can arm our mind with that kind of truth. In verse 3, Peter then says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. And what he means there is, you know, all that time in the past, the way we used to live, when we do kind of Gentile kind of stuff, we lived like non-believers live, we acted like pagans do. Would you, I'd say that's enough. I've had enough of that. It suffices us. I love the imagery here. We've spent enough time being idiots, living like we didn't know the gospel. And notice, by the way, the fact he uses words like our and us. It's incredibly humble of Peter. He's including himself. I was no better than you. I wasn't raised a Gentile. I was raised a Jew, but I, I did some stupid stuff as a kid, maybe he's, he's trying to say. I lived long enough in ignorance. I want to come unto Christ. How how is a pagan life lived? What's the will of the Gentiles? Well, he describes it this way. Back in the day when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Remember those days? Now, I don't know if Peter committed all those things. I doubt he did. But to include himself on the list of those with pasts to learn from and to repent of. Have we had enough of that, that we never want to go back? Cause if we do, then the next line makes sense. It's a it's a classic one. He says, Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. And what he means there is, picture though, the 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 old crowd you used to run with. Cause here it's these people that want you to run with them, to an excess of riot or to an overflow of debauchery, as some other translations read. <laughs> I'd love that thought. It's this this place is overflowing with iniquity. And yet there are people out there that have not come to their senses and overcome the old Gentile way of living, and they want to head right back to it. They haven't learned from their sins. Prison was not the cure for their crime, and they want to head, they want to run to it. Other translations talk about rushing headlong back in that direction. And the way it's put here, they think it's strange that you don't want to go with them. This is the the reformed criminal that comes out of prison having fully atoned for his own crimes. And then his his old gang gets back together and says, Hey, you want to come with us on our next crime spree? And he's like, Yeah, no thanks. I learn about the consequences of that, and they 're like, Oh, come on, you 're no fun anymore. My wife deals with this in addiction recovery as well, where someone is sober and in recovery, and their old friends wonder why they 're not sober not, not not any fun anymore, or they come and they think it's strange that they don't want to come with us to the bar. I mean, they, could, they don't have to drink. They could be our designated driver. Just, it's fine. It's like, I can't put myself there. This is the, the crash test dummy who read the manual and realized what he's in for. And when his buddies say, hey, we're going on a cruise. And he's like, no, uh, this drive is not a pleasure cruise. I know where it ends. It ends abruptly. Let me put it that way. And they're like, oh, come on. It's such a strange thing. You don't want to rush headlong into the brick wall we're driving towards. Oh, no, that's not strange at all. I know what what it means to to crash headlong into consequence. Okay? I love that that Peter is helping us overcome our tendency to sin by reminding us of the last time we didn't overcome it. He then says in verse 6, for for this cause, or the JST, because of this, So we've learned from our mistakes, right? But for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Or JST, but live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now, this is a verse we always couple with what we saw back in chapter 3 about work for the dead. Because here again, he's speaking to the dead or of the dead and the gospel being preached to them. They can be judged just like any of us who lived on earth. Were they baptized or not? Did they accept the gospel or not? Did they live it? And they'll still have the chance to do that, even though they're living with God in the spirit. It's beautiful how that connects. And again, it can also be on a more symbolic level here on earth that the spiritually dead, oh, we need to teach them the gospel too. Maybe they haven't learned from their mistakes yet, but if they can learn from the truth, then they'll be able to discern truth from error and hopefully make some changes because they're going to be judged by God someday as well. Okay? Then verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Let's remind ourselves of this second coming context. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. I mean, we're in this thing together. We have to have love for one another. Let's all move to Philadelphia. Okay, city of brotherly love. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And the JST clarifies, it's not that charity is covering it, it's that charity preventeth a multitude of sins. Important difference there. Just because I love people, that's not a blanket blanket amnesty or get out of jail free card that all my former sins are forgiven. Or any future sins are just covered as long as I'm loving to people. No, that kind of love doesn't cover anything. But it does prevent. There's something interesting about loving God and loving neighbor that prevents me from committing sins against either party. Think of the Ten Commandments. And the ones that have to do with God, if I loved God, I would never commit those ones. I would never profane his Sabbath, nor take his name in vain. And if I love my neighbor, of course I won't kill them or steal from them or lie to them or commit adultery. No, love, pure charity, the pure love of Christ preventeth all kinds of sins like that. So develop the pure love of Christ. The next verse he says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Oh, that last part's tricky. <laughs> it's the adverb, not just the, the, the verb. I can be hospitable, and, but can't I grumble about it behind closed doors? Nope. You've got to have a good attitude to match your good action. Or as he says in the next verse, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I love that we're stewards of God's grace, not owners. It's something that we minister to one another because it all comes from God. It all comes through Christ, and there's no shortage there. We can minister to one another with an abundance mentality because we know there's enough grace to go around. The way he puts it here, we've all received the gift. So we can minister to each other. And I love the ending. Stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold means varied, multicolored, so many different forms of the grace of God given to his children. It's like 1 Corinthians 12 and all those gifts of the Spirit. There's so many different kinds. And you don't have them all, but everybody has some. So yeah, we need each other. That should make it a little more easy to be hospitable to one another without grudging. They have gifts to share with you just like you have gifts to share with them. And there's so many forms of the grace of God. So allow him to work in them the way he chooses. Then, verse 11... If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And to be an oracle of God? Wait, me? A prophet? A mouthpiece of the Lord? Well, that's above my pay grade. But to speak as, as one? To quote scripture and the words of living prophets? To try to teach truth the way prophets do? I'm no revelator, but can I share the revelations that they have received? Can I... Help people come into Christ by ministering that grace to them. That's what we're called to do. Peter says, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. Do do it as well as you can. He'll help you grow up in God, but just start the process. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's how we minister God's grace to others. We speak the word of God. We act like his mouthpieces. And we always do it for God's glory. Not our own. That prepares us then for verse 12 and 13. Where we're back to more suffering and persecution. I love the way Peter puts it though. Beloved, think it not strange. Concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. This reminds me of Paul's fellowship of sufferings. And if we're part of that fellowship, then yes, we can rejoice, because we know the end of our suffering. Christ suffered innocently, but then received glory from God. The same process is ours if we follow in his steps. So rejoice, that your faith is being tried by fire. Your faith is worth more than gold, after all. Remember that from chapter 1? But here in chapter 4, I love the way he puts it. Why are you so shocked that you're suffering? Did you not see this coming? Did Jesus not tell you this is what you signed up for and expect it when it comes? Don't think it's strange. Like, well, this is odd. My life is hard. I thought when I accepted the gospel, life would be easy. No, life would make more sense. Suffering would be worth it because now you understand what it's, that God is polishing you. But I think sometimes it's our expectations that are our downfall. And we expected life to be easy and so we make demands of God that it always be that way. In some ways, if you think about life being our chance to learn and grow, it's our day at the gym. And if you're at the gym, don't be surprised if you start to sweat. Don't be surprised if you end up with sore muscles. It's what you came for. Because sore muscles are growing muscles. And that's what God is trying to help us develop. So to my friends out there who are suffering or struggling, it's not, it's not for no reason and there's a purpose behind this pain. I hope that we can see it. In some ways, maybe we should be surprised by good days. And wow, that's, that's really strange. I've had, I, it's been remarkably, surprisingly easy at the gym lately. I'm not sure what's going on. Maybe there's not enough weight on the rack. Uh, maybe I need to increase the resistance. Uh, but I mean, I'll take it. Someday a cool off, sometimes a cool-off period is exactly what the doctor ordered. And yes, the physician of our souls will sometimes give us good days. Let those come as surprises. Welcome surprises. But don't be surprised when it's back to work. Okay, that's what life is for, after all. And then verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, so speaking of some fiery trials that might come your way, let's say you're living the gospel and people are reproaching you for it. Well, fine. Happy are ye. See how often Peter, who fully recognizes all the difficulties that are all around them, always seems to bring it back to joy. Exceeding joy, like he said in the last verse. Or happiness right here. Be happy. Hey, I'm suffering. I'm in good company. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of. I get that. But on your part, he is glorified. So keep it that way. Stay on the Lord's side of things. but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evil-doer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Because again, if you suffer like that, you deserve it. On the other hand. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. I, that's probably like the third time he said that. Okay. Be grateful. You are suffering for good cause, not because you deserved it. Then this chapter comes to its close in 17 through 19. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now he's quoting Ezekiel chapter 9 with that. This idea of judgment beginning at God's house and then spreading out from there. And why wouldn't God start at home, right? Right? Why wouldn't he cleanse the inner vessel and then work outward from there? That's exactly what's happening. So you saints, of course you have to be tried by fire first. Then the fire is going to spread and cleanse the earth. But we have to be ready for it. He says, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? I mean, if we can't handle it, then they're toast. And then the next phrase is even more powerful. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Did you catch that? I mean, it's going to be hard enough to make it through life with the gospel. Imagine those that are trying to navigate it without divine help. How do people out there survive without the perspective the restored gospel has given us? I don't know. I mean, it's hard enough to raise kids with all the support structures that the gospel and the church offer. The righteous will scarcely be saved that's a little scary. We're, it's like we're going to make it by the skin of our teeth. Well, all the more reason to share the gospel with others. All the more reason to let, to be a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood and a holy nation and let light shine out of darkness because the world will need all the help it can get and it's going to get it from us. Okay, shine. He then says, wherefore, let them that suffer According to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls to him. In well-doing, as unto a faithful creator, God is our only hope. So surrender to him. Trust the process. He's a faithful creator. And if he's the author of our faith, then he's the finisher too. Remember that from Hebrews? And if you're still suffering, yeah, you're still being polished. He's not finished finishing you. But just submit. It's going to be okay. Keep your, or commit your keeping to the keeper of your soul. Beautiful ending of this chapter. And then you have one more to go. And in chapter five, oh, it's all hands on deck. Peter's the chief apostle, but he needs more people to lift alongside him. More lively stones to build this foundation for the kingdom of God. And there's some beautiful advice here. Chapter 5, verse 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. I'm one of you, but you're, that means you're one of me, and, and I'm working, so you've got to work alongside me. He says, I'm also a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Peter is speaking by the authority of experience here. He has seen so much. Glimpses in Gethsemane, the sounds of persecution outside Caiaphas' palace, Everything that happened from the garden to the cross and on to the garden tomb, Peter is a witness of Christ's sufferings. He's also a participant and partaker of the glory of Christ. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, after all. And he's going to come back to that place in this letter. He says, as a result of this authority of experience, feed the flock of God, which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Oh, I, I can't imagine a better mission call than this. Of the chief apostle himself calling us to serve the chief shepherd in the way that a good shepherd would all we are are under shepherds and here the chief apostle who serves the chief shepherd he's calling us all to the work it's all hands on deck this same chief apostle who knows the savior so well i've been a witness of his suffering can we make that suffering count for something Can we extend the blessings of the atonement of Jesus Christ to those who don't know that that's the way they can be saved? Can we do that for their sake as well as for the Savior's sake? Not only have I seen his suffering, I've seen his glory. In fact, I partook of it when I was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's going to speak more of that in the second letter. But here, if we understand the glory God is offering us through his Son, then there's no work we won't do to help people tap into it. I love the description here. Feed the flock of God. I got to be there when he multiplied loaves and fishes and he let me and others distribute it to feed them with what matters most, that milk that helps newborn babes in Christ grow up in God. Or when he says to take the oversight thereof, if you're taking the oversight, then no other oversight is needed. You're your own boss now, your own supervisor. You don't need outside supervision. I don't have to be told what to do. I don't have to wait for my elders quorum president to follow up on things. I don't have to wait for a bi- the bishop to give me a calling. Oh, I've already received a calling. I'm called to serve. And so I'm going to put myself to work. There was a great talk from Elder Lynn G. Robbins called Be 100% Responsible. And if you've taken the oversight, then yep, the buck stops with you. Go out and serve. When he says, do it not by constraint, but willingly, what's your attitude? If you're doing it because you're being forced to, the people you're serving, quote unquote, will know. They'll sense that they're just a project. That you're not doing it for their good or for God's glory. You're doing it for your own. No, it has to be willingly. You can't be doing it for filthy lucre. That's priestcraft? No, you're doing it of a ready mind. And you're not doing it so you can lord your superiority over someone. No, you are leading by example. Not trying to force them to do something that they're not doing and now I'm so frustrated about it. No, this is true Christ-like service. I don't know if there's a better place to describe it than here. Remember, he that is compelled in all things, the same as a slothful and not a wise servant and Peter's calling for something higher than that, something holier than that. The power is in you, whereunto you are an agent unto yourself. So bring to pass much righteousness. It's so desperately needed in these dark days. He then says in verse five, Likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. We've seen different forms of submission left and right in this in this letter. But here it's young to old. And then he kind of steps back a bit and says, "Ah, actually, let's just all submit, shall we? Yea, all of you be subject one to another. There's mutual submission. This is no high or low or left or right. This is knights of the round table. And hey, let's all just submit to one another. And the best way to do that, next line, is to be clothed with humility. Clothe yourself with that. Cover yourself with it. Not some kind of regal robes that you feel like you're better than other people. No, because if you're wearing that, that's being clothed with pride. And no wonder Alma uses the verb to be stripped of it. Humility is a piece of clothing you never have to take off. If you're wearing pride, look out. God's going to strip you. So yes, clothe yourself with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. That's Proverbs 3. And that's been quoted several times in these apostolic letters. Peter then says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You see, you don't have to exalt yourself. He'll take care of that. Okay, Let him exalt you in his time, when you're prepared for it. And in the meantime, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That, there's a testimony for you. Those are beautiful words of submission and trust coming from Peter. And where had he learned it? He knew that he could cast his cares upon the Lord. And the Lord would come through for him. Jesus had filled his empty nets when he was called to be a fisher of men. He had saved Peter from what would have been a watery grave. He had calmed storms and calmed fishermen. He would multiplied loaves and fishes and turned water to wine and healed Peter's mother-in-law and and called him the Rock and then helped him live up to that glorious nickname. Peter spoke by experience here, knowing that he could cast his cares upon the Lord and the Lord would take care of him. The same is true of us. So, what's our final advice? As this letter comes to a close, verse 8 and 9, Be sober, be vigilant, and you'll need to be. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Haunting picture here. Can you imagine Daniel in the lion's den? Can you see Satan prowling around in search of prey, trying to pick off the weak and the wounded from the edge of the herd? Wow, no wonder, next line, we have to resist him steadfast in the faith. That's what's going to be required of us. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now the first part of that is easier to understand than the second. Of course we have to resist the devil. We have to be steadfast in the faith to do it. Yes, we'll need to be sober and vigilant to know what we're up against. I mean, a devouring lion? But that second half? Please know that the same afflictions that you're dealing with So are your brethren and sisters everywhere else. There seem to be be lions aplenty. But there's something powerful about the strength of the herd. This is the fellowship of suffering Paul was talking about. And if I know there are other people that are suffering in solidarity, that they have faith and are steadfast, just like I'm trying to be, Oh, there is shared suffering, but there's also shared strength. And if you've ever seen those nature documentaries when a lion comes in to pick off someone from the edge of the herd and then the herd circles around and defends their fellow wildebeest or whatever they are. Oh, you don't mess with that. So hold on to that common strength shared in all of us. And then he closes the letter. Verse 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that ye have suffered for a while, and that's all it is, just a while, be patient. May God make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember Paul's language in the letter to the Colossians? Grounded, rooted, established, settled. Well, here's Peter's equivalent. And to be established, to be grounded in the gospel, to be perfected in Christ. That's all he's been hoping for as he writes this entire letter. And then he really closes it. <laughs> because one amen is never enough, right? There always seems to be a, a PS at the end where Paul would include a few of his fellow travelers, a couple of junior companions that wanted to say hello as well. Well, Peter's got some junior companions too. So the real, the the final ending, he says in verse 12 through 14, by Silvanus, and that's Silas, who we met alongside Paul, one of his junior companions. Well, he knew Peter really well too. Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Now, do we sense that there are other mission companions behind Peter? There's Silas writing whatever comes from the mouth of Peter but did you catch what Peter how he described this letter this was more than an epistle it was an exhortation and a testimony I've been exhorting and testifying of these things did you feel exhorted by what we've studied so far did you feel invited and encouraged to do something better to feed the flock of God to be more Christ like and loving of one another And did you sense his testimony shining through chapter after chapter? Testimony of the lively hope that comes from the living stone. Testimony that even those in spirit prison will be granted mercy and an opportunity to repent. Testimony that Christ is our chief shepherd and the bishop of our souls. And the lamb without blemish prepared from before the foundation of the world. Oh, cast your cares on him, my dear brothers and sisters. He can handle it. He'll he'll see us through. And then, in parting words, The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. And so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's the final ending. <laughs> the last thing he'll say. No more PPSs after this. Until he picks up the pen again and gives us a second letter that we'll turn to in just a moment. we here. Marcus, my son. Mm. So it's a, a trio. Silas is there. Marcus is here. Who's Marcus? Oh, as in Mark? As in John Mark, as in the Gospel of Mark? Yeah, that's the one. Remember when we studied the Gospel of Mark, it was most likely written at Peter's assistance and insistence, I'm sure. Here you have Mark, who Peter refers to as his son in the faith, probably hanging on every word that Peter is saying in this letter and anxious to record every memory Peter can give him to assemble a Gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, glad you're there, Marcus. Glad you have good memory and a quick pen. Write down everything Peter gives you. But did you catch also what Peter said? Oh, sending greetings from the church here in Babylon. Now there, it's like, wait, wait, what? Babylon? Isn't that like 6th century BC? Isn't that uh, east of Israel? Off in modern-day Iraq? Well, yeah, if you want to be literal, but I'm just being symbolic here. And here in Rome, we might as well be in Babylon. The capital of the empire. The symbolic center of the wicked world. And yet, what is Peter saying? That even here in Babylon, we've established a little outpost of Zion. And we are trying to become of one heart and one mind. We are striving to dwell together in righteousness. And it's amazing what the church is becoming as a result. So to all of us, as we ponder this first letter of Peter, are we ready to do likewise? Are we ready to endure and endure it well, no matter what comes from the wicked world all around us? Are we ready to establish Zion in the midst of Babylon? That's exactly what we have been called to do, especially as we await the coming of Christ. Now Second Peter is going to start with a bang. Right on the heels of what we studied in 1 Peter. Context of the second coming. The persecution and opposition all around them. How will we handle it? How will we endure it? Will we hold on to our faith and overcome the devouring lions that seem to be prowling all around us? Second Peter is another masterpiece. Sublime language to borrow Joseph Smith's phrase. And in it, yes, he will talk about the second coming and its timing and how to prepare and endure until it comes. But he will also teach some deep theological truth about, how, about who we're supposed to be becoming in the meantime. If we were just newborn babes drinking the milk of the gospel back in 1 Peter, in 2 Peter, are we growing up in God? Have we put off the natural man and in so doing made room for a new nature so that we could take on or partake of the divine nature of Jesus Christ? That's how Peter's going to begin this second letter. And actually, Joseph Smith himself, a year before the martyrdom, gathered the saints together in Nauvoo and preached a sermon based on Second Peter. It's an amazing discourse. I wish we had more details from it. A few people took some notes and we've tried to recreate some some thought there. But among other things, Joseph Smith said, what Peter taught, what's written here on the scriptural page, those are just hints of what existed in the prophet's mind. And I want to get back to that mind. In fact, I want to get beyond it, back to the source of the truth that Peter was speaking of. I want to go back to, to Peter's source and reveal things to you along the lines of what God had revealed to that chief apostle. Oh, buckle up. There's some powerful truth here. So chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter. Here he's giving us both his names by way of salutation. Oh, the Simon I used to be, the Peter that the Lord helped me to become. He's working on all of us that way, to chip a true Peter out of the rock and make us someone that he can build a kingdom on. This Simon Peter is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I love that he includes both titles. Apostle seems to be high and servant seems to be low. And yet, what did Christ say about those who would be chief of all? You must be servant of everyone around you. Peter was both. And here he's writing to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now notice, it was God's righteousness and Christ's righteousness that endows us with that precious faith. It's through what they've done, not what we're doing, that we have any kind of lively hope of salvation. But to obtain that like precious faith, precious enough to purify it, Far more precious than gold that needs fire to be refined. No, you fellow saints that share the kind of faith that Peter had, and I hope we get to be included in that group, this letter is for them. It's for us. He says in verse 3 According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, hold on to that. God gives us everything we need to become like him. Through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. And yes, those two always need to go together. It's not enough to just think, oh, he's calling me to glory. Well, yes, but glory devoid of virtue, that's a dead end street. So he's calling you to virtue so that you might virtuously attain glory. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That's an amazing phrase. God has given us so many promises through the covenant relationship he's entered into with us. Those promises are precious. In fact, they're great. In fact, they're exceeding great and precious promises. That by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is how he begins this letter. I mean, it's, it's a symbol crash from the opening note And to understand that God's promises are beyond our wildest wildest imaginations, that we can't wrap our heads or hearts around them, and yet they're real, they're offered to each of us, and we can obtain them as we partake of the divine nature. Notice it was partake, just like that fruit at the tree of life. It's something we taste, something we digest, something we make a part of us. I don't develop the divine nature on my own. I'm powerless to do that. But to partake of it by creating a covenant connection with Jesus Christ so that his nature can flow into me. Ah, What's the process? How do I do that? Well, keep reading. Verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the ultimate type of knowledge. That's the John 17:3 kind of knowledge, that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's the kind of intimate, relational knowledge the Lord wants to know us by and wants us to know him by. But how do we, I mean, that's how the divine nature is partaken of. We're one in him and he's one in us. That's at-one-ment, right? Paul talked about having the mind of Christ. Well, here's Peter talking about taking on the nature of Christ. But how do we get there? Well, by growing up in God. By progressing line upon line, precept upon precept, going from grace to grace until we receive a fullness. That's how Christ himself grew up in God. Right? That's John 1. That's Doctrine and Covenants 93. Well, here in 2 Peter 1, there's a, a process. There is a crescendo of Christ-like attributes and he really does seem to be placing them in a particular order and it's an ascending order. Where did he start? Okay, it's going to require diligence but that's kind of the overarching I'm going to move forward and it's going to take some work. Okay, Don't be surprised that it's going to require some, some blood, sweat and tears at the gym. All right, But with that diligent approach let's start with faith. Because faith has to be that initial principle of power. It's faith that there's a process that's worth stepping into. Faith in an eventual result. Faith in exceedingly great and precious promises. Okay? So I believe enough to come into Christ, but adding to that faith, I now need to bring in virtue. Because it's one thing to presume upon Christ's grace, to have faith without any works to back it up, to have an unvirtuous faith because, oh, I just believe that Christ is going to take me as I am. Oh, that's not partaking of the divine nature. That's staying stuck on ground level. So add to your faith virtue. But don't stop there. Now that you've purified your heart, that's good. You are an innocent babe in Christ. But time to grow up and gain a little knowledge. Now, you can be trusted with this knowledge because you already established virtue at your base. But to to have virtuous knowledge and knowledgeable virtue, let's grow into the next step. Do you know how to act in virtue so to, it to help, helps other people? Do you know how to feed the flock of God over whom God, the Holy Ghost, hath made you an overseer? Are you ready for this? Now to that knowledge, because that, that's kind of heady stuff, and it can get out of hand and you can start being overzealous because you know so much. So to that knowledge, please, please add temperance you're now putting reins on the horse, okay? Because the horse is ready to run full speed ahead and it has the knowledge to go there, but maybe not the knowledge of when to, to rein it in. So please have this temperance. Now, temperance will actually prepare you for the next step, which is patience. Because if I've reined myself in, then I'm not going to grow impatient with other people's progress. Maybe they're still back on the step of faith, or maybe not even there yet. Maybe they're wrestling to turn faith into virtue, or they're really having a hard time adding knowledge, because some of that knowledge is more meat than milk. So please be patient with others that are further back on this path. To that patience, and patience to yourself, obviously, because you're not at the end of the path either. But the next step is adding to your patience godliness. Now you'd think that would be the final, the culmination of it all. Because what is Christ's nature? It's a godly nature. So partaking of the divine nature? I'm godly. I'm done. Well, not entirely. Yes, you are like him, but if that's simply the vertical component of the first great commandment, are you ready to live the second that is like unto it? Because godliness in a vacuum isn't helping people. Godliness Isolated from one another, there's there's the vertical post with no horizontal crossbeam reaching out to bring others in and then lift them to God as well. So to that godliness, please add brotherly kindness. It's a beautiful start. And if you'll build on that brotherly kindness, what can it eventually grow into? True charity the pure love of Christ. That's the culminating Christ-like attribute. Everything else might fail, Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 13, but charity never faileth. Faith, hope, and charity, they're all important, but charity is the greatest one of all. That's where we end up. That is the divine nature because God is not just godly. God is love. And that's how we end this. And if we get there, and if we abound in these attributes, see there's still room to grow in all of them, then we're not barren, we're not unfruitful. This is the tree of life bearing fruit with additional seed within it to be planted in other people's hearts so that they can grow up in God and partake of the divine nature as well. This is a glorious passage. It describes the whole process. No wonder in section 4 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that great missionary revelation, we would quote it every morning in the mission field. I just didn't realize that I was also quoting Second Peter when I was quoting Doctrine and Covenants 4. But let me read you verse 6 and see if it sounds familiar. From the Doctrine and Covenants, missionary revelation, remember faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, Patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, diligence. Now, they, adding humility and diligence there at the end, that's not the culmination. Those are the underlying things that Peter already established from the start. But other than that, and other than a, a switch of godliness and brotherly kindness, those ones are reversed order, it's amazing that this is almost a perfect parallel. And actually, an even closer one comes in section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So from D&C 4, that's the kind of missionary I was called to be. One that has partaken of the divine nature. As the walking attribute used to tell us, one of our supervisors at the MTC, the missionaries are the closest thing to Jesus that most investigators will ever meet. Hmm, there's a tall order. Partake of the divine nature, elders and sisters. All of us. But then the Doctrine and Covenants 107, as it's describing the presiding quorums of the church, the First Presidency, the quorum of the Twelve, the quorums of the Seventy, it talks about the way they make their decisions. How will we lead the kingdom of God forward? And what's amazing are the Christ-like attributes that must be at the core of every decision they ever make. This is section 107, verse 30 and 31. The decisions of these quorums, or either of them, are to be made in all righteousness, in holiness and lowliness of heart, meekness, and long-suffering. And then, listen to this order. And in faith, and virtue, and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Because the promise is, and now we know where this promise is coming from, if these things abound in them, they shall not be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. Of course we need to have the knowledge of the Lord when we make decisions especially in how to run the Lord's kingdom, and how do we obtain that knowledge of the Lord? By becoming like him. We now have the mind of Christ. We have the attributes of Christ. We act the way he would act. I've grown up in him. I've crescendoed and received grace for grace until we've received the fullness. None of us are there yet in this life, but that's the process, and that's the path. It's glorious. That's what Joseph Smith was teaching in that sermon in Nauvoo. He taught more, and so did Peter, verse 9. But he that lacketh these things, if you're missing any of them, then you're blind and cannot see afar off. He can't see the next attribute on the ascent. He can't see the great precious promise off in the distance. No, he's nearsighted. He's myopic. He's stuck where he happens to be right now. He hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. And no wonder we have a tendency to fall back into them when we forget what Christ did to free us from those sins. It's interesting that remembering what Christ has done for us is one of the things that keeps us moving forward along the path. I know what I used to be, and now I know where I am now. If I continue, I know the Lord will continue to purify me. I can forever come unto him. Now, what Peter says next Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, this is a profound doctrine, and this is one that Joseph Smith really talked about in that sermon in Nauvoo. Having your calling and election made sure. Now, talk about the great and precious promises Talk about what the Lord is offering us. Remember how he started the first epistle? This incorruptible inheritance that is there reserved for you in heaven. How to have your calling, to have your election made sure. You're in. It's a done deal. You have proven yourself. There is enough momentum on this upward climb of grace to grace until you receive a fullness you have proven that you will seek the kingdom of God at all costs. And so I offer you in advance the promise. It's yours. That's what having one's calling and election made sure signifies. Ye shall never fall. Now, what's amazing about this? I remember talking about to a, my Jesuit uh, priest slash professor at Divinity School where he, was, he asked us to study the writings of Gregory of Nyssa. He was a Cappadocian father in like the, I don't know, fourth century A.D., something like that. And Gregory's great breakthrough was a doctrine he called the doctrine of perpetual progress. You see, what kept him up at night was wondering, how does God guarantee our salvation as a permanent state of grace and yet preserve our agency? Because wouldn't one cancel out the other? If I can still choose, then I can still fall, and so my my salvation isn't permanent. It's not guaranteed. And vice versa, if my exaltation is, is assured, guaranteed, then surely he must have pulled out my agency, otherwise I might have the potential of messing things up. But that, neither one of those sounds like God. God wants to honor our agency, but he also wants to perpetuate our salvation. So how can those... I mean... Before there was TV, they thought about some deep stuff back in the old days. Well, Gregory of Nyssa's breakthrough was, oh, what if it's perpetual progress? What if it's continuously growing up in God? Because if I can grow, then I can choose. And therefore, agency is preserved. But if I'm choosing to move forward, yeah, then I'll never fall back. That's it. That's how you do it. And when I studied that, I couldn't wait to sit down with my Jesuit professor and say, you know, this sounds a lot like something Joseph Smith taught in terms of eternal progression. And he and I had a great heart to heart comparing Gregory of Nyssa with Joseph of Palmyra and seeing the truthfulness of those twin doctrines. It really is an amazing thing. Now, no wonder section 107 talks about making decisions based on Christ-like attributes. Because can you imagine having your decisions, calling an election, made sure? Like, of course, that's the right thing to do. That's God's will. Move forward with faith. You've ascended the ladder. You've climbed to the point where the Lord knows you'll always do it his way. So that's the right way to go. In this case, in our own, for ourselves, not just for some kind of decision, but my own discipleship to get to a point where the Lord knows I will forever be trusted so that he will promise me exaltation to the point I don't ever have to wonder or worry. From a place of assurance, I can then assure other people that there's a path ahead of them. And there is an upward climb that Christ makes possible for us all. There's something beautiful here. Now, don't run faster than you have strength. Don't look beyond the mark. I've heard it said that when it comes to having your calling and election made sure, those who know don't talk, and those who talk don't know. Now, I don't talk, not because I do know, but because I don't know, okay? But to have the promise of that kind of possibility, I've always thought it genius of the gospel to give you goals and yet later goals and yet later goals that it's not a matter of I got baptized and I now I guess I'm done no you can progress beyond how about temple endowment how about temple sealing how about calling an election made sure how about growing up in God and receiving the fullness of the Holy Ghost there's always steps to take forward and good old Gregory of Nyssa is just smiling from the other side that's how you go Line upon line, precept upon precept, grace for grace, growing up in God. With that, we're ready for verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. I mean, forgive me for reminding you of things you already know, but hey, this is a long term process. So, repeated reminders will be required. C.S. Lewis used to say that it's not about education, it's about motivation. People know what they're supposed to be doing. They just don't do it. So, yeah, we're not going to be negligent to put you in remembrance. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle, as long as I'm alive, and I don't know how long that's going to be, but as long as I'm here, I think it's meet to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. I'm so grateful that Peter made it such a point to make sure that the message outlived the messenger. He's hinting at some interesting things there. I'm trying to remind you of these things before I leave this mortal tabernacle. God's about to pack up the tent, and I am that tent the Lord made it crystal clear to me. Notice how he put it. Even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath shown me, there on the shores of Galilee, post-resurrection, Jesus told me that I would die for him someday. And that day is fast approaching. While I'm still, still here, you better believe I'm going to stir you up. And even after I'm gone, I'm going to be exhorting and testifying from the grave. (laughs) So prepare to hear this voice from the dust. Okay? Why do you think I'm writing these letters? In verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And let me tell you how. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. You see, at the end of this first epistle, he talked about being a partaker of that glory. And what he was referring to was being there with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, here he's speaking of it more directly. I am an eyewitness of his majesty. You can trust my testimony. I know who Jesus is because I saw him in all his glory. I thought I had a testimony before. I said in Matthew chapter 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it wasn't until chapter 17 during the transfiguration itself that I came to know Christ for who he really is. I bear testimony of that. And it is based on the authority of personal experience that I can assure you that this is not some cunningly devised fable. Those who would chalk up Christianity's continuance to a fertile imagination on the part of the apostles. People that were sad to see Jesus go, and so they kept the story alive by inventing tales of resurrection. Well, there was no tale of transfiguration. I was there. And I was there for resurrection, too. I saw his glory. I saw his resurrected glory. Trust me. So often skeptics will say, oh, what's it like to believe in fairy tales and Santa Claus stories? And I love that someone of the caliber of Peter himself would push back against that and by virtue of eyewitness experience say this is no Santa Claus story. This is no fairy tale. This is no fable cunningly devised. In verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. The JST says, we have therefore a more sure knowledge of the word of prophecy to which word of prophecy ye do well that ye take heed. Listen up and listen hard, because this is true what we're teaching. This is a sure word. This is like having your calling and election made sure. Here's a prophecy that we know will be fulfilled. But he says next, This is as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm waiting for. I am planting seeds of light, and I hope that day star begins to arise in your hearts because it will usher in a glorious flood of light when the light of the world returns to us all. Peter, James, and John saw all of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. According to Joseph Smith, they had their calling and election made sure there. That's the sure word of prophecy that's being described. Can you imagine that, giving them enough light to endure any age of darkness? No wonder in 1 Peter he could talk so glowingly of affliction and trial and tribulation. Oh joy, happy are ye, rejoice. There's enough light to get you through the darkness. He then says in verse 20 and 21, and these are fascinating verses to end chapter 1. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation or JST no prophecy of the scriptures is given of any private will of man how was it given then verse 21 for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost that's how truth comes that's how revelation works That's how scripture is recorded It's not just a bunch of writers get together and go, hey, we should like write something that could stand the test of time. Let's do a real classic. We'll call it, I don't know, the Bible. No, you don't write scripture by your own will. It's revealed to you. And you are told to write these things down to stir other people up to remembrance even after your passing. Right, Peter? There is something powerful about this holy men of God are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. God breathes through them and out comes the living word of God. It doesn't come by private will. It certainly isn't subject to private interpretation. Now, I love that passage. I quote it all the time in interfaith dialogue because so much of interfaith disagreement boils down to interpretation of Scripture. Often, in fact, people who attack your faith from a religious standpoint, it's one thing to attack it from a skeptical standpoint, but from a rival religious standpoint, often you'll have people trying to cram scriptures down your throat. They'll Bible bash with you, even though you don't want to Bible bash with them. And they'll say, oh, but it says here. And over the years, I've learned just to say, oh, that's a beautiful verse. I I love that one too. I believe in it. I just don't interpret it in the same way you do. According to your theology, which I think I understand, no wonder you believe that that verse means this. Well, based on our theology, as a Latter-day Saint, we believe it means this. So I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree, and I hope we can do it without becoming disagreeable, because we just have different interpretations of that scripture. And then they'll say, oh, no, no, but over here it says, and again I'll say, oh, beautiful verse, that you interpret in this way and we interpret in that. Now we're back to interpretation. Oh, but over here the Bible says, oh, we could do this all day it always boils back down to interpretation. The second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln lamented that fact. When he said, North and South believe in the same Bible and pray to the same God, how did we come to such opposite conclusions based on the same text? Joseph Smith said something similar as he was searching for truth in his boyhood and attending as many different religious uh, meetings as he could, and yet, in his own words, finding that those ministers, the teachers of the various sects, understood the same passage of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. I love that phrase. I've quoted it so many times, that's why I have it memorized now. It's you can't put your confidence in an appeal to the Bible because the Bible is not a self-interpreting text. I can believe in the Bible wholeheartedly, but because it doesn't tell me exactly what it means all the time, it is open to interpretation. And here's Peter's caution. It's not meant for private interpretation. That's not how the revelation came in the first place. So you can't take something that was revealed by God to holy men moved upon by the Holy Spirit and then leave it to a bunch of academics to figure out what God meant by that. No, that's not how it works. That's private interpretation. Inspired interpretation would require the same level of inspiration that revealed the passage to begin with. Think about that. If the word came when holy men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost, then to interpret Scripture, I would also require a holy man of God to be moved by the same Spirit that inspired the message to begin with. You with me? This came crystal clear to me once in an interfaith dialogue when I was talking with an evangelical friend and it dawned on me. We were talking about rival interpretations of Scripture. I brought up 2 Peter chapter 1 and pointed out if that's all it is is interpretation then there's no final arbiter of authority saying this is what it really means we would have to have someone on the level of its original revelation and then the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream popped into my head which it never had before in that kind of context but it blew my mind and I said to this evangelical friend think about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. When he had the dream and he was demanding an interpretation of it, remember? But do you remember how he set it up? Because in some ways it's easy to interpret, especially if there's no one to tell me that I'm wrong. And so to ask the soothsayers and the wise men, explain to me my dream. And they're like, great, just tell us what it was and we'll take it from there. And probably with a twinkle in his eye, knowingly, King Nebuchadnezzar said, Oh no, no, no. I can't remember it. Yeah, that's right. He must have remembered it or otherwise how would he know that they're telling the right one? But to test them and say I want you to tell me what my dream was, then tell me what it means. And they're like that's impossible. Only God can do that. And you picture Nebuchadnezzar going, exactly. If it takes a miracle to reveal then I'm not going to settle for an interpretation that's any less reliant Upon the miracles of God. You understand what he's saying? He's setting this up to say, I trust the authority of revelation. I don't trust the authority of interpretation because anybody can do it. But if you can prove that you have the authority to reveal, which nobody but God can do, then I'll trust that you have the authority to interpret, which anybody could do. You see what he's doing? He's, catching, he's connecting the impossible to the possible and forcing someone to be able to do the impossible so that I trust you with the possible. The authority to interpret must come from the same level as authority of authority as the authority to reveal. And that kind of ended the conversation. It was like, whoa, well, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us waiting for prophets, seers, and revelators which in our faith we believe have been restored to the earth. I am so grateful for prophets and apostles that aren't looking for private interpretations, but are offering us inspired ones at the same level as Revelation itself. Incredible. With that, go to chapter 2. And on the heels of this glorious recognition of the power of God, well, we do have to recognize the power of the world that we're up against. And there's some strong language in chapter 2. So brace yourself. You can sense Peter's frustration spilling out upon the page as the chief apostle is trying to guard the flock of God from the ravenous wolves and devouring lions that are prowling all around. Pay close attention. Verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily or privately "...shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction." Sounds like Peter was paying attention in Matthew 24, when Jesus spoke of the signs of the times, including false teachers and false prophets, that there would be damnable heresies, as Peter put it. And he's seen them proliferate all around him. Remember how often Paul warned about ravenous wolves coming in, about... Itching ears and and people heaping up teachers to their lusts. Oh, there's going to be apostasy left and right, Paul warned us. And Peter is raising the same alarm. In fact, the way he puts it next, many shall follow their pernicious ways. They're going to fall prey to these falsehoods. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Compare Christ who bought us at the price of his own blood to those wicked people who make merchandise of you, oh, buying and selling you to the highest bidder. This sounds like what Jesus had said to Peter before Gethsemane that Satan desires to have you that he might sift the children of the kingdom as wheat. How's that for making merchandise of one another? Just sift through his fingers, got them right where he wants them. Well, what's going to put them in that kind of state? Falsehood. The kind of misunderstandings and false doctrines that run rampant in these last days. Even to the point, he says, interesting in the middle, If many follow those ways, and you have saints that are living not so saintly, to the point that the way of truth, what they're supposed to be living, but they're not anymore because they've been duped, they've been deceived. Now the way of truth is being evil spoken of. That was a concern he raised in the first letter. Like they're saying bad things about you. Good thing they're not true. Well here, yikes, what if they're true? What if people in the name of truth, are living falsely and embracing falsehood. That's the deception of the elect that Jesus warned about in the last days. Peter's warning about it as well. In verse 4, he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. Now we're going to see a lot of this next week when we get to the letter of Jude. And scholars aren't sure whether Peter is quoting Jude or Jude is quoting Peter, but there's all kinds of parallels between this letter and that letter we'll study next week. But here, what Peter's drawing upon are these examples. N samples is the way that King James gave it to us, but examples, same thing. Examples of people who oh, fell prey to wickedness. And he's warning his immediate audience and us, a later audience, not to fall prey to the same kinds of things. Three examples he brings up, the angels that sinned and were cast down to hell. This is the war in heaven. And the fact that even they, so close to it all, they succumbed to the temptations of the adversary? The accusations of our enemy? We'll see more of that in the book of Revelation. How about the people in the flood? We saw Peter refer to them in the first letter with a sign, as a sign of hope. They'll get a chance to accept the gospel in the spirit world. But here, it's a sign of wickedness. And they served that purpose as well. Notice, by the way, when it refers to Noah, this eighth person, he was a preacher of righteousness, but they wouldn't listen. It's actually interesting because in the book of Genesis, there's no hint that Noah ever warned a soul. According to Genesis, the way we have it in the King James, he was just almost making the ark, hoping nobody would know that this is his getaway vehicle. And he wanted to ditch them all among the rising waves that doesn't sound like a righteous person at all and yet that's all genesis leaves us with it's actually interesting because it's only here in second peter 2 where noah gets a better reputation oh no peter says he was a preacher of righteousness by the way in the inspired version of genesis namely the book of moses chapter 8 you meet noah you get his story, and guess what he's doing in the inspired version of it all? He's preaching. Just like Peter said he did. Okay, And then the third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see that back in Genesis 19. And the wickedness that prevailed there to the point of its, of its utter destruction. Well, do these examples wake us up? So that we don't become oh, number four in the list? That's what Peter's warning us against. In verse 7, he goes back to that third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he brings up one of its few survivors. He says that God delivered just Lot. And not in terms of, oh, it was just Lot that made it. No, just. A man of justice. Just Lot. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing. Vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. It's good to know that about Lot. Because again, in the Genesis version, he's got some issues. And yet in the inspired version, version, yes, he is a just man of God. Can you imagine, though, surrounded by such immorality, so much evil, so much neglect of the poor, so many problems in Sodom and Gomorrah that we studied last year in the Old Testament, that a righteous person being surrounded by those kinds of influences, it's just vexing It's so heavy, it weighs on the soul, it's frustrating and it's exhausting and it's oppressing and it's overpowering. Those are all synonyms for the Greek word defined as vexed here. Now I said, can you imagine? Well, we don't have to imagine. Here we are living in Babylon, Peter said at the end of the first letter, and here we are living in spiritual Babylon in the last days. We are living in the modern equivalent of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, President Packer used to say, at least those were localized dens of iniquity. In our day, they have spread out so that everywhere is enemy territory. No wonder we need these little outposts of Zion in the midst of spiritual Babylon. Is it vexing to try to raise children in righteousness in the midst of a wicked world? Yeah, it's vexing. Look around, and do you see and hear things that trouble a righteous soul? Well, if so, and it is, then Peter understands you, and so does Lot. But there is good news. Verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing really accusation against them before the Lord. Now, Peter got a little ahead of himself there, and he's, he's starting to get more and more amped up about this because he's frustrated. He's vexed. He knows exactly what Lot feels like. And here I am trying to warn the wicked I'm trying to gather the righteous and bring them out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't want anyone to look back. No pillar of salt in my rearview mirror. But you have to know at the beginning that the Lord delivers the godly. He knows how to do so. He did it for lot. And he'll do it for us. We have to hold on to that faith, that lively hope. Otherwise, the wicked world will be overly vexing and we won't be able to endure it well. But speaking of the things we have to endure, that's where he starts building speed at the end of that passage. Okay, The presumptuous, the self-willed, those that are speaking evil of dignities. When he mentions the angels at the end there, it's like, whoa, not even the angels would speak that way, bringing railing accusation against the world. And they have every right to. It's like hell speaks contemptuously of heaven, but heaven doesn't even speak disrespectfully of hell. No, the angels honor even those that are struggling. But the wicked don't respond in kind. And speaking of the wicked, here's where Peter really goes off. Okay? Forgive him. Uh, be, be okay with this because he's going to... I mean, he's frustrated. And you can sense righteous indignation. Rhetorically, he is cleansing temples and overturning tables and cleaning house. The way he says it in 12 and 13 and 14, but these as natural brute beasts, irrational animals is how other translations render it, but natural men, in fact, not even men, they've lowered themselves to the animal kingdom. These are brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. That's all they are. Line them up for the slaughterhouse. That's what they've become worthy of. They speak evil of the things that they understand not. They don't even know what they're talking about. But here they are, spinning lies and false accusations and deceiving the elect, and it's frustrating because I'm trying to guard the flock of God. Now they don't even know what they're talking about. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. They don't even wait to do it under cover of darkness. There's no shame here. Out in the bright light of day. They want everyone to see how much joy they're getting in their iniquity. Spots they are and blemishes. Sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. And sporting themselves. There's this idea of reveling in their own iniquity. Deceiving you into coming to partake of the feast. Oh, there's nothing good on that dinner table having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Those are hearts trained in greed, we could say. Cursed children is how he ends this thought. Man, can you sense his frustration? The righteous indignation bubbling up and spilling over. I am the chief apostle and I am trying to guard the flock. And all these lions prowling around its edges, brute beasts, spots and blemishes. Let me calm down. Let me cry repentance. Let me extend a hand of help and of hope. Because they can repent, I know that. But you who I am trying to persuade to stay faithful please know what you're up against please know who is attacking you I I have a sense of what struggling saints are dealing with in terms of those that are attacking their faith and it is frustrating I won't I won't use this kind of language but I can understand why Peter would, would want to would, would not be able to avoid it. He then says in verse 15, still speaking of those who are cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray. And then he uses an interesting example from the Old Testament. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Do you remember that story? Such an interesting one. Balaam was flirting with iniquity all along. Oh, no, I can't possibly go against the God of Israel, but eh, maybe he'll change his mind. And since you got a lot of money on your hands and a lot of honor, you're promising me. Maybe I'll just accompany you back to your leader in case I have an opportunity to do him any good. Oh, really? To the point that you're dumb donkey. It's like you're dumber than a dumb animal. No wonder he called them brute beasts in the previous passage. Your donkey sees that you're on a collision course with disaster. Your donkey is trying to turn you away. And yet you're beating this poor animal until he finally has to speak for himself and warn you of the errors of your ways. It's such an interesting story. And fascinating that of all the examples of wickedness in the Old Testament, having drawn upon several already, that he would turn to this one as a grand finale of sorts. I do think the dumb animal imagery is something that Peter wanted to make a point of. He then says in verse 17, these are wells without water. And that's a pretty good description of hypocrisy. I mean, it looks promising. There's the well. Just set down the bucket and drink the water that you need. But nope, these ones don't have any. They're making you empty promises. And that's all the adversary can give. you. These are clouds that are carried with a tempest. And yeah, I guess if you can't find water in the well, a cloud would be nice. But if it's a cloud carried with tempest, then ooh, that kind of cloud probably does more harm than good. To whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever, Peter says. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness Those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. And that's what frustrates Peter, too. They made it. They were clean escaped. They were in recovery. And then they fell prey to those addictive sins. They made it out of prison. And now they're right back because people said, Oh, it's so strange. You don't want to come hang out with us anymore. Please come back and run roughshod, headlong, into iniquity. This is a bishop who's frustrated that people keep preying upon the youth of his ward. This is a chief apostle who's worried about wandering sheep. In verse 19, while they promise them liberty, and that's what they all will do, right? Go, come, eat, drink, and be merry. You can do whatever you want. No rules here. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. Or slaves of sin, we could say. And how's that for irony? You're offering me liberty? You're the one in prison. You're the one in bondage to sin. You don't tell me you have the keys to free me from anything. No. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. And that describes the wicked to a T. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, those are the ones who were clean escaped in the previous verses, if they are again entangled therein and overcome, oh, then the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. And that's tragic. People who have tasted the joy of redemption before falling back into sin, oh, there's a bitter aftertaste that they didn't realize before. Maybe they were living terrestrial lives and then they fell into telestial ones but to have attained a celestial level of living and then fall back down to the telestial low. Ooh, there's a drop they'd never experienced before. That's how bad this is. A latter end worse than their beginning. The way he says it in 21 and 22, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, and here he's going to quote a proverb, chapter 26, verse 11, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Peter seems to gravitate toward pretty graphic visual images. To think of a pig that has just been washed, only to turn around and go right back to the mud that it had been wallowing in. Maybe mire is worse than mud, in fact. In fact, let's take it even to a more disgusting level. And let's imagine a dog returning to its vomit. I used to do this to my seminary students, and it was disgusting. I've had a few over the years think back to that and bring it up again and say, See, it worked. You were scarred for life. Because I would paint this picture of not a dog returning to its vomit, but what if it was one of us? Because that's what Peter's really aiming at. You see, why do we throw up to begin with? It's to get something out of our system that was never meant to be there to begin with. Sound like sin? Repentance is a lot like throwing up. It's painful, but it's so much better. We feel so much better when it's done. Now, imagine, as my children have sometimes done, throwing up and being so relieved and so grateful that you feel better that you just go right back to bed not having (laughs) cleaned up a bit of the mess you just left. And imagine coming back the next morning and seeing it all in all of its disgusting glory. Now I'm not going to be as graphic as I was with those teenagers. But imagine you're hungry because you haven't had breakfast yet and Was it really that bad, what I was feeling last night? And it's right here. I mean, some of it's probably still undigested. Okay, I'll I'll stop there. This is getting gross, I'll admit. Dogs do that. There's no way a human being ever would. Then again, we do. And Peter, in many ways, is relying on the the visceral reaction to such a disgusting visual aid. To steer us clear of ever doing anything like that. The next time we want to go back to an old sin, I hope we're haunted by a dog returning to its vomit. That was Peter's hope. Well, chapter 3 then brings this epistle to its close, and it's a fitting masterpiece, or a fitting end to this masterpiece of a letter. In this one, he's going to come back to the idea of the second coming. Because if you're suffering at the hands of your enemies, then you can't wait for a reprieve. And when will Jesus come? Because then everything will be better. Well, be patient. It's a lively hope in the resurrection. But we have to let patience have her perfect work. And perhaps this time of refinement is going to need to go on for a while. That's the message of chapter 3. He says in verse 1 This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Here's the importance of remembering what God's mouthpieces have promised, whether that's prophets from the Old Testament, apostles from the New, I'm here to stir things up. That's why I wrote the first letter. That's why I'm writing this second. Verse 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days. Does that perk up our ears? He's speaking to us now. There will come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, or JST, denying the Lord Jesus Christ, and saying, so here's how they're denying him. Here's how they're scoffing at us. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Can you picture what they're doing there? In scoffing tones? Oh, you're waiting for the second coming, are you? Just like every generation before you. And it comes and goes, and it's always the same old story. Failed prophecy. I actually read a book on the reception history of the book of Revelation. It was a book about how people read the book of Revelation ever since it was written. And the author himself was a skeptic and called the book of Revelation the ultimate example of failed prophecy. Because everybody thinks it's talking to them and then it never happens and he never comes. Now we'll talk about this more when we get to the book of Revelation in a couple of weeks. But what he called failed prophecy, I call perpetual relevance. Because the things that Revelation is teaching us apply in every generation, not just the one that will welcome Christ in his return, but every generation leading up to it. Now, in this case, have you heard that scoffing? Have you felt or sensed the pointing fingers? And has it caused you to lose a little of your lively hope in the coming of Christ? I hope not. But that is what we're up against. It's to the point, there was so much of that scoffing that mainline Protestantism decided to, well, explain away the miraculous version of the second coming and replace it with a much more logical one, a much more reasonable, rational one, by saying, oh, that was all symbolic. Of course Jesus isn't going to return again because that's scientifically impossible. What they mean by that is we're going to pull off social justice and peace on earth and as a result, it's as if the spirit of Christ, yeah, that's it, the spirit of Christ has returned. Ah, how's that for the second coming? I've shared, with this, I've shared this with you before, but when I was at a liberal Protestant divinity school, teaching those kinds of figuralizations I was talking to my dad, who was a temple sealer in Los Angeles, and an, uh, uh, an emeritus 70 came to seal his granddaughter. And my dad asked him, so what do emeritus 70s do? And he said, anything the prophets and apostles want us to. I'm like, oh, that's smart. What about you? Because he said, a lot of them are temple presidents and so on. He said, what do you do? And he said, well, mine's an interesting assignment. I'm responsible for Adam and Iaman. Well, not ultimately. I just go there every so often, talk to the senior missionaries that are out mowing the lawn and I come back and return a report to the First Presidency. Because they always have a close eye on Adam on Dion for obvious reasons. Well, my dad was blown away by that. Like, that's fascinating. And when he told me that story, I just laughed. He's like, what? And I thought, the fact that liberal Protestantism is explaining away the second coming and making it into this whole figurative non-event. Well, we're setting up chairs at Adam on I <laughs> Talk about taking it seriously. And knowing this day is approaching. We don't know when, and neither does Peter, but to not succumb to latter-day scoffers who are saying, Ah, oh, where's the promise of his coming? Oh, like every promise... This is one that is exceeding great and precious. And I trust who it's coming from. Peter says next in verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of. It's kind of like Amulek. I knew, but I would not know. And this is what they're ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So there's the flood in the day of Noah. He keeps coming back to that. But then he builds on it and says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So what Peter's doing there is bringing up two periods of cleansing, both of which caught the wicked world unawares. The first was Noah, and the second is at the last days prior to the coming of Christ. The first one was with water, and according to this passage, the second one is reserved unto fire in the day of judgment. Joseph Smith actually said once, and it's an amazing statement, Noah came before the flood, and I have come before the fire. (laughs) Imagine Peter perking up with language like that. That it's go time. And just like God's word created the earth, and then cleansed the earth. By that same word, he has promised he will cleanse it yet again. So bank on it. In verse 8, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. So keep the promises in mind, but keep this in mind as well. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So we got to understand that the math might not exactly work out. And what seemed to be so soon, well, maybe that's, maybe that's God's day, and yeah, it's happening tomorrow. But tomorrow's a thousand years away. To think about the six thousand years of the Earth's temporal existence, before the seventh thousand years, ushers in the millennium that's a seventh day of rest. Oh, that's sabbath after a day of work or a week of work. Hmm, interesting. Or Jesus dying and then coming back on the third day. And Christ ministry in the dispensation of the meridian of times. And here we are in the third beginning the third thousand years afterwards. Are we getting closer to the millennium since Jesus did seem to come back from the grave on the third day? Okay? Now I'm not saying year 2000, since that's passed, or giving a specific timetable. That, to me, is getting overzealous, overly specific, which defeats the purpose of the Lord trying our faith. But knowing that we're getting close to the seventh day of Sabbath, or the third day of returning from the grave, there's something powerful here, even if we use the Lord's math. But then this, after speaking of a thousand years and one day and how they're related, Peter then says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness. Those are the scoffers. They're saying, oh, your God's a slacker. He's not coming. Maybe he's been busy. He's, he was underprepared and he still has a few last minute preparations to go through. No, that's not slackness. Well, fine, then what's taking so long? And here's Peter's answer. It's genius. He is long-suffering to usward, or towards us, we would say. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now do you understand why the Lord is waiting? It's not because he's a slacker. It's because we are. And we are slacking in our repentance. And God wants to give us time to change. Now that's tricky. We've talked about this in some of what the Book of Mormon describes uh, and in the Doctrine and Covenants as well as far as hastening the work in its time. But at the same time the Lord prolonging our days so that we could repent. And the inherent tension between those two. On the one hand we need to hasten the work because if the devil keeps building momentum it's just going to be that much harder to survive spiritually. To the point that even the righteous shall scarcely escape. Remember that phrase? So hasten the day. I don't want the devil to have any more time on the clock than he he already has. Okay, then why don't you speed things up? Well, because some people are still on the wrong side of, of the field. And if they'll just come over to our side, then we can end things. You see God caught between a rock and a hard place, trying to speed things up for the sake of the righteous, but trying to slow things down for the sake of the wicked who might yet repent. He's not slacking. He just doesn't want anyone to perish. So if there is still hope that anyone might heed our calls to repent, then, Father, can you wait just a little longer? This is the servant in the allegory of the olive tree. Please don't burn down the the vineyard yet. I still have a little more hope of turning wild branches into tame. Next, Peter says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Just like Jesus had taught them back during his mortal ministry. But he'll come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That was all that fire he talked about back in, the, in verse 7. But this fervent heat, melting away the dross of the earth. How's that for a trial by fire? Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Well, let me answer. Be the type that is looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Interesting language there. It's not enough to just sit back and wait. He wants us to look for and look forward. He wants us to hasten unto. That's interesting. It's not just kind of deathbed repentance and last minute, like somebody stand at the street corner and see if you see the car on its way and let us know because we're scrambling to try to get everything ready before grandma comes. No, in this case, I'm ready and waiting. To the point that I'm going to come out and meet the Savior halfway. Remember to the Thessalonians, to be caught up, to meet him in the air. There's rushing his way as he's rushing our way. And to meet him in the middle so that we can descend together. There's something beautiful about hastening unto the coming of Jesus Christ. I'll hasten the work. Hasten it indeed. Don't wait on me. I'm repenting. And then verse 13 and 14. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Oh, there's the patience we'll all need, as patience has its perfect work. There's the worthiness that will be required of us, to be blameless and without spot, but to be at peace because we trust in the Lord's promises. Can we handle these last days with a measure of calm, of joy, of rejoicing? That was the emotion that seems to run throughout these letters for Peter. Well, we just need to become more like him. Well, verse 15 and 16, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So he's waiting on us so that he can save us. He is long-suffering, but it's salvation that he's always been after. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, (laughs) which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. I kind of chuckle there to... To hear Peter refer to Paul in those kinds of terms. They had some friction occasionally. Remember when, when Paul called out Peter saying "Oh, you're, you're willing to be Gentiles when you're with the Gentiles but then when you're with the Jews you revert back to those old ways. Come on where's your courage chief apostle? And Peter just took it on the chin and love you Paul I, I've got a different responsibility than you and I'm trying to keep the peace across the whole thing But, love you, and keep on writing, despite the fact that sometimes it's really hard to understand. Again, Peter was more straightforward in so so many ways. The difficult theology and phrasing and wordplay that Paul was so well-known for. I do kind of laugh that Peter's like, yeah, I know that some of his stuff was hard to understand. It's worth the effort. Paul preached these things, just like I am. People have rested... Paul's words to their own destruction, I'm sure they'll probably rest mine as well. But if we will turn to the Lord and true prophets with true interpretation, then we'll know where we are. And we'll know when we are. Both will be important. And then he ends. Verse 17 and 18. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before. And the Lord's been telling us in advance all this time. Beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Instead, what should we do? How do we avoid falling like that? Well, Gregory of Nyssa knew. Joseph Smith knew. Peter does too. So he says, but grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen like we discussed previously. best way to not fall down is to keep climbing up. Continue to partake of the divine nature. Wherever you are, add the next ingredient. Take the next step. It doesn't matter where you are on the path as long as you're moving forward. You don't have to be on the cusp of true charity having mastered every other attribute on the way. Maybe you're still working on your faith at ground level, that's okay. Work on it. Come to know Christ as the source of all these great and precious promises. Come to know him the way Peter did, even if only oh, tiptoeing into the water at first. It's amazing what the Lord can do with a Simon to turn him into a Peter. It's amazing what the Lord can do with any one of us if we'll simply allow him to. So, grow in grace, grow up in God, exercise your faith, and then let it grow into virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and charity itself. That pure love of Christ will draw you toward purity himself. I testify of Jesus, as Peter did. I do not have Peter's personal witness of his glory. I was never there at the Mount of Transfiguration. But having felt the Spirit confirm the reality of Peter's words, I do trust him. And more importantly, I trust him of whom Peter testified, the great Bishop of our souls, the great Lamb without blemish, I look forward to the day of his coming and in the meantime I will do all within my power to protect my fellow sheep from whatever evil influences are deceiving the very elect according to the covenant. I pray that we may overcome the latter day scoffers that are all around us and heed them not. Let them mock from their their vantage point in the great and spacious building. Here we are at the tree of life, rejoicing in fruit that is sweeter than anything else I've ever tasted. I bear witness of that fruit. I bear witness of the love of God. And in his name I invite you and me and all of us to continue coming unto him so that with his help we may grow in grace until we receive a fullness.